This is Chicago's game day. Deep to left field, and it is fair and gone. Deep left center. Game over. Cubs win. Cubs win. Chicago's game day. He is at the wall. He leaps. He caught it. He caught it. Alvarez. It's a triple play for the Sox. Bases loaded. This is Chicago's Game Day, only on ESPN 1000 at ESPNChicago.com. Good morning, everyone. Welcome on in. Black and Abdallah off on their way to have an enjoyable Sunday. And hopefully you will, too, over the next three hours. I'll be with you till 1 o'clock, leading you up to games three and four of the NCAA uh, Elite Eight. Some pretty pretty good games last night. There's sometimes where the games don't live up to the hype of the Elite Eight games and the two on Saturday and the two on Sunday. Well, if today's games can live up to what happened last night, we'll be in great shape for an afternoon of basketball. You can hear right here on ESPN 1000. We'll talk a lot more about the NCAA tournament. Scott Phillips, NBC Sports Chicago, will join us around 11 o'clock. Jesse Rogers will get to us sometime in the 12 o'clock hour. Lots of baseball talk in the 12 o'clock hour. Not just Sox and Cubs. Talk about Milwaukee and Hader. Not with a T, with a D. Josh Hader, pretty unbelievable what he did and has done this year. Christian Yelich homered for the third straight game. Three games, three homers for the Brewers outfielder. Bryce Harper finally went deep. Finally he was getting booed after a couple of strikeouts in game one in Philadelphia. Hit one 465 yesterday. And um, baseball players are upset about a little plastic championship belt. We'll talk about that. And the Boston Red Sox pitching staff is struggling. And I'm happy about that, actually. The Toronto pitching staff is not. So, a lot of baseball talk in the 12 o'clock hour. We're going to get to Sox and Cubs in uh, just a second here. And we got some other things throughout the course of the show. You can get to me at 312-332-3776. You can also get to me on Twitter. I'm constantly checking it. Fred underscore Hubner. Uh, lots of stuff going on. Yesterday was a day where the Cubs played, the Sox played, the Bulls played, the Blackhawks played, the Chicago Fire played. Okay? The only team, the only professional team, the only top professional team in the top men's league because uh, the Wolves also played, was the Bears didn't play. And this week there was a lot of conversation about Jordan Howard. I think most of that's pretty much gone. We may get into it a little bit later on because I was kind of surprised at the response by a lot of people uh, upset that the Bears... I was a little upset the Bears didn't get a pick for this year, but it's a sixth-round pick. I'm not going to worry too much about it. Um, a guy doesn't fit the system. Why keep him? And uh, apparently that's what the Bears have decided. They brought in Davis from uh, Seattle. So uh, we'll see how things go. We we can get into that maybe a little bit later on. But we have to talk Cubs and White Sox baseball for a lot of reasons. For the Cubs, let's start with the Northsiders. That was the uh, thing that's most fresh in our mind. We'll get to the White Sox. Don't worry about that because I, I watched that also yesterday after I got back from the Chicago Fire game where they got a win. We'll talk about the Fire somewhere around 11.45, get into their win over the New York Red Bulls. So like I said, lots to do over the next three hours. Um, sit back, relax, strap it down as as Hawk would say. Um, we waited to see how you Darvish was going to be. 
you Darvish throwing in simulated games in Arizona. Everything was good. He was hitting like 96, 97. Things were good. His fastball was good. He comes out yesterday. You Darvish, pretty darn amazing at the very start of the game because you Darvish strikes out the first two hitters. And I'm going, this is going to be amazing. Darvish is going to come. He's going to, he's going to throw like 65, 75 pitches in the first four or five innings. He's come up six, seven, eight strikeouts. And that was not to be. Uh, he walked the next hitter. Um, he walked a couple hitters. Walked the bases loaded, as a matter of fact, before striking out as Drubal Cabrera. 35 pitches in the first inning for Darvish. First time through the lineup, three strikeouts, six walks. He threw 25 pitches in the second inning. Darvish gone after two and two-thirds, giving up three runs and two hits. The Cubs actually started the game by scoring three runs in the first inning. They got off. They did a very, very good job at the very start. Good things were happening for the Chicago Cubs early in the game. And, of course, part of those good things always have to do with El Mago, Javi Baez. Out in the left center. Cubs will grab the early lead as Bryant scores. And Baez will stick with a single. It's one to nothing here in the first. Yeah, the Cubs went out and scored even more. Highlights courtesy NBC Sports Chicago Plus. Uh, it was on plus last night. And uh, the Cubs with those three runs in the first inning, and uh, they were just hitting the ball and lighting up the Texas pitcher. And uh, that was a good thing. Uh, you expected more from you, Darvish. You did not get it. And that was disappointing. As I mentioned in that first inning, uh, struck out the first two guys, then walked the bases loaded. He did eventually get out of that inning. He went. Strikeout, strikeout, walk, 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 strikeout. 3 nothing after one. Yeah, pretty amazing. It was a bizarre game of four of the Cubs last night, and he wasn't the most bizarre. Well, maybe he was the most bizarre pitcher last night, but you also had Carl Edwards Jr. last night. Uh, the Cubs were had the lead, and they even had the lead late in the contest, uh, and that was until... Carl Edwards Jr. came into the contest. Cubs had an advantage, and what happens? They're up a run. Uh, Edwards gives up a hit and a walk to lead off the bottom of the eighth inning. Uh, Joey Gallo um, takes the first pitch and hits it into the center field bleachers for a three-run homer. Um, Edwards then walked the next guy. He was out. You cannot figure out his earned run average right now because he faced four guys they all got on base and so you can't figure it out until he actually gets an out in the contest it was a bizarre situation the cubs falling behind in the contest because of what happened with uh Carl Edwards Jr. and uh, Edwards um, really didn't have any explanation about what happened in his outing and uh, the home run ball either. It's cold, I guess. Um, I don't really have too much to go with it. Um, I just know it wasn't a good pitch at the end of the day. Um, but, I mean, we'll see how you know, the next outing goes. He'll probably be up. We got a lot of anger in me right now, so just put it out. That's got, he's got a lot of anger in him right now, and he said it very, very relaxed. So that's going to be interesting to see how things go with Carl Edwards Jr. So if you're a Cub fan, you want to jump in, 312-332-3776. Joe Madden talked about Hugh Darvish's outing. 
great stuff. Velocity was good. Breaking ball was good. Everything was good. We just have to be in the strike zone a little bit more consistently. He did not complain of anything. He did not complain of anything. From the beginning of the game, the first two hitters, I thought, here we go. He looked like he was on. And then they got a couple things going on. He had to pitch through some messes there. And then, you know, the home run by Cabrera, I mean, he's had a lot of pitches by that point. And just trying to get him through there a little bit just to keep him stretched out is part of it also. I thought he looked good overall. I mean, like delivery and stuff out of hand. The command just wasn't there. I can't. I can't give you any other good reason than uh, what I was watching. Now, one of the things, and Chris Black, who was just here with Adam Abdallah every Sunday morning from 8 until 10, one of the things that we talked about last year a lot with you, Darvish, that when bad things happen, he seemed to implode a little bit. And we were hoping that that would change when he got healthy, and he apparently is healthy right now. And he talked a little bit about his start last night. A little bit, but just a first outing. Just, you know... The season started, so yeah, but just a little bit. First couple guys, I feel good, but after that, I lost my command about especially the fastball. Yeah, he did lose his command when he walked three guys in a row before striking out as Drupal Cabrera to get out of that first inning. But again, uh, bad things happening. Two and two-thirds, three runs, just two hits, but he was walking the ballpark. He's only the second pitcher in the last five years to walk six hitters in the first two innings. Darvish has walked three in each of the first two innings of that start, uh, something that even Tyler Chatwood didn't do last year. And uh, it was strange, too, the Texas Rangers... Their first 10 batters did not put the ball in play. It was the longest such streak to start a game in franchise history. It had been nine back on uh, July 27th, 1972 um, against the California Angels. Uh, so, yeah, the Cubs pitchers, they walk 12, strike out 14. They lose 8-6 to six yesterday, blowing that uh, 3 nothing first inning lead. They did have other highlights besides the Javi Baez RBI single and the three-run first inning. They had uh, Kyle Schwarber coming to the plate. High drive out in the center. It is gone. 5-3. to three. Kyle Schwarber with his first of the year. 26 of them last year for Kyle. He had one in spring training. It came in the final Cactus League game. He's uh, about it throughout spring training. Doing a little more crouch in his stance, trying to activate the legs. There's your Ford home run replay. I just think he's going to have a monster year. Yeah, I think Schwarber is too. And there was a lot of talk after game one of the season on Thursday about Kyle Schwarber not getting in earlier in the contest uh, on the opening day and not starting with Mark Zagunis playing instead. You're going to see a lot of Kyle Schwarber. Schwarber, um, he did something late in the contest. And it won't be talked much about because we're going to not even hear. Uh, we're going to talk about Darvish and Quintana, who comes in, and we didn't even get to him yet, and also Carl Edwards Jr. But late in the contest, as late as you can get, ninth inning, two outs, Kyle Schwarber up. They're in the shift. What does Kyle Schwarber do? He tries to bunt once. Doesn't work. He does then lay down a bunt that rolls down the third base line, hits the third base bag. He gets on base. That's what the Cubs needed. They were down eight to six. That was a final score. They're down eight to six, two outs in the ninth inning. Instead of swinging for the fences, swinging for a hit, he says, listen, 
I can bunt the ball down the third baseline and get on base. That's exactly what he did. So he gets on base before the final out of the contest was made as Contreras makes the final out. Contreras and Schwarber both going three for five yesterday with a couple of RBIs. Baez had a couple of hits, drove in a run, but the Cubs do lose eight to six. You want to jump in three one two three three two three seven seven six. We'll get to the White Sox in just a little bit. One of the other things, Jose Quintana came in, and I guess Joe said after the game that this was always a possibility because Quintana is the number five starter, and with all the days off, the day off after the opener on uh, Thursday, then another day off coming up later this week, at least one, uh, they knew that Quintana would be available if necessary. Jose Quintana came into the game in the fourth or fourth inning, and he went four innings. Gave up six hits, two runs. He walked three. That's too many. He struck out eight. Um, Jose Quintana didn't do an awful job for a guy that came in trying to, you know, calm things down a little bit. And uh, that's what you're going to get out of him. There was a stretch in the game yesterday where Len Casper was talking about uh, Jose Quintana and his starts over the last couple of years and actually in his career. And the one thing you're going to get with Jose Quintana all the time is you're pretty pretty much going to get consistency. You're going to know what you get. And this is what he had to say last night. Um, looking back on Jose Quintana, uh, 2013, 33 starts, 14, 32 starts, 15, 32 starts, 16, 32 starts, 17, 32 starts, 18, 32 starts. So you know what you're going to get. And in baseball and in pitching, that's a rarity nowadays. Now, obviously, you would like a little bit better ERA, you would like him to buckle down a little bit better, have things work a little bit better for him. But you know he's a guy that's always going to be out there. So Quintana went in, did the job when the Cubs needed it yesterday. He'll be pushed back. I think he's going to go against Milwaukee then as the Cubs wrap up that uh, three-game or the three-city road trip before they come home to start the regular season. Three one two three three two three seven seven six. Your thoughts on what went on with the Cubs yesterday? I know it's only two games into the season, and there's no reason necessarily to be all that concerned. Joe Madden actually said after the game, he go, he said the guys played well, hustle, aggressiveness, everything went well. It, it did, except for uh, on the mound. Um, what happened with Darvish? And then what happened with Carl Edwards Jr.? The bullpen has been a question mark. The Cubs bullpen was not all that bad last year. And when you see Carl Edwards come in, he's got this weird little delay now. Uh, he can't do it when there's men on base. But when there's not men on base, he takes the wind up and then he takes his foot down. And it's kind of a hesitation. He puts his foot down. Then he steps back and throws the ball. And as Drupal Cabrera complained about it, Chris Woodward, the new manager of the Texas Rangers, was complaining about it. Uh, Joe Madden talked about that after the game also, and he said, it's really okay. Other people are doing it. Kenley Jansen does something similar, but he doesn't put his foot down as much as Carl Edwards Jr. does. The People were talking after the game about Edwards Jr.'s velocity being down. I'm thinking, when you do that and hesitate and then throw the ball, you're not getting all of your power behind each and every pitch. Again, I'm not a scientist. I'm not a mathematician. There's a lot of things I'm not. Um, but it looks like that's one of the reasons, in my opinion, that maybe his um, 
velocity is down just a little bit. So the Cubs lose eight to six yesterday. Both teams lost eight to six. The Cubs and the White Sox. The White Sox earlier in the day had Ronaldo Lopez on the hill. Now Ronaldo Lopez had a streak of six straight starts going at least six innings. Well, that did not happen yesterday as, uh, he was unable to uh, do that. Ronaldo Lopez ran into some problems yesterday for the White Sox as, uh, he gave up a few runs, gave up three in the third inning, gave up one more in the fifth inning. Uh, Lopez for the contest going four plus innings, giving up four runs, six hits. He walked four and that's something you can't have uh, one of your top starters doing. You can't be walking people, and they did. But there were some good things that happened for the White Sox yesterday. One of them, after Eloy Jimenez did not get a hit in the first game, he did get an RBI and a hit-by-pitch with the bases loaded. Yesterday, he strolled back up to the plate. On the ground, up the middle, and the first hit for Eloy Jimenez is a ground ball single in late March 2019. It will not be the last. He adjusted. There's the slider. And with the defense the way it is, it's a base hit. Well, now he'll have a keepsake for the rest of his life as that ball will exit the field of play. And the irony of this game is his first hit came on a slider. Yes, it did after he was looking bad and striking out against sliders in the opening game of the season. And Jimenez talked about getting his first hit and how he felt. Bill Mason. It's one of the feels you're never going to forget. Can you have the baseball, Eloy? Yes. You have the ball. What are you going to yeah. do with it, you know? I put a, I'm going to put it in my room, and uh, I'm going to see it every day. <laughs> So he's very, very happy, and he should be. He got another hit later in the contest. There's some things with him in left field. There was a ball in the opening game of the season um, on Thursday when he was coming in for a ball that was near the third base line. Tim Anderson was going back for it. Anderson grabbed it and was talking to Eloy Jimenez, and the broadcasters on TV, Benetti and Stone, said they're going to have to make sure that their communication is good. And yesterday, there was a fly ball, and uh, Jimenez said he called for it. He said Anderson didn't hear him, but he also said that he didn't want to run into him and collide with him. So what happens? The ball falls. That was not a good thing. Yesterday, the uh, Royals actually had a 4 nothing lead over the White Sox into the sixth inning, and uh, White Sox were still looking for their first home run of the year, and uh, it came up with Jose Abreu at the plate. Jose crushes this ball. Deep left field, and that is home run number one in 2019 for the Sox. Suddenly, it's a one-run game. So you figure, okay, that's great. Things are good. You've got the White Sox are battling back. They did the same thing on opening day after not getting a run until the ninth inning. But here they're battling back again from behind. It's 4-3. to three. And then what happens? Manny Benuelos, Nate Jones, and Jace Fry, uh, they give up uh, not one, not two, but uh, four more runs. And all of a sudden, it is eight to three, and things are not good. The White Sox did battle back again with three more runs in the seventh inning, including uh, Yohan Moncada at the plate. Moncada tags it to right field. Deep toward the alleyway. This ball is out of here. Yohan Moncada drills it. And it's 8-6 in the 7th. Don't look now in the rearview mirror, Kansas City. 
Yeah, and uh, Jason Benetti on the call. You heard it on NBC Sports Chicago yesterday. Moncada looking really good. Not, I mean, I know it's two games. It's never too early. You want to win every game. But uh, just two games, and Moncada is looking very good. I'm looking here, hitting 500. He was 3-for-5 yesterday. Two RBIs, two runs scored. Uh, he gets that a home run yesterday. So the White Sox cut it to 8-6, to six, and they had chances. And I wonder, 312-332-3776, if this bothered some White Sox fans. It may have bothered old-time White Sox fans. But what happened yesterday, the Sox with back-to-back hits to lead off the ninth inning, down two runs, eight to six. And I know people are probably saying, okay, well, now you've got Yolmer Sanchez at the plate. Yolmer Sanchez should be a good bunter. So if you bunt him over, there's men at second and third and one out. Well, I've been reading books. People have been telling me for years. Uh, analytically, the last thing you want to do is give up an out. The 27 outs, the most precious thing you have. You don't want to give up an out. You've got Yolmer Sanchez at the plate. What happens? Yolmer Sanchez flies to center. Uh, Leary Garcia strikes out. Yoan Moncada hits one to medium deep right field. That's the ball game. White Sox lose eight to six and strand the runners that let off the ninth inning. Uh, are you one of those guys that said maybe at this time a bunt is a good thing? Get the runners over. Then all you need is a base hit. Um, I understand that way of thinking. The numbers show that a lot of times, um, even in baseball, when you have a runner at first base and nobody out, you have a better chance of scoring that run than you do with a runner at second base and one out. I know that might sound strange to some people, but statistically, it's correct. So what were your thoughts about that? What are your thoughts about Yohan Moncada off to a really good start? Not only at the plate, but Yohan Moncada also a very good start in the field. They moved him over to third base. And I'm not sure if that's because they weren't sure he was picking up second base or if they picked Nick Madrigal in the draft and they think he's going to get here a lot quicker and they want to have a place for Moncada or they figure there's less thinking uh, over at third base. It's a lot more reaction time. But he has made some really nice plays over at third base in just the first couple of games of the season. So your thoughts on the White Sox. Moncada moving over to third base. Uh, the pitching staff needs to step up. Uh, Lucas Giolito getting yet another chance uh, today, getting yet another chance this season. He had some really, really bad numbers during the course of the year last year. He had a 613 ERA. He had a 4.67 walks per nine innings, which was the worst in the American League. Uh, it's a big start for him today as he goes up against the Royals a little bit later this afternoon. So your thoughts on that? And Cub fans, you Darvish, your thoughts on him? What do you think about Carl Edwards? And um, how cool was it that Kyle Schwarber actually laid down a bunt? Uh, Joe Madden didn't seem all too freaked out after losing the game. They wrap up their series today with the Rangers a little bit later on. Cole Hamels getting the start against his former mates. Hopefully it goes better for Cole Hamels than it went for you, Darvish, yesterday. 312-332-3776. Again, you can get to me also on Twitter, Fred underscore Hubner. And callers, hang in there. I know we got a guy in here who wants to talk about Dylan Cease. We'll get to him and get to all your calls right after a uh, sports center at the bottom of the hour. 
hour. Don't forget, NCAA, two more teams getting to the Final Four. We've got that talk coming up at 11 o'clock, and the games will be right here today. You've got Auburn, Kentucky, Michigan State taking on Duke. They're trying to join Texas Tech and Virginia in Minneapolis next week. We're talking about it here on ESPN 1000. This is Chicago's Game Day, only on ESPN 1000 and ESPNChicago.com. Welcome back in. Fred Huebner with you all the way until 1 o'clock. And don't forget, we've got the NCAA games today. We'll be talking more about the games coming up at uh, 11 o'clock. Scott Phillips from NBC Sports Chicago will join me talking to some college basketball. Texas Tech went over Gonzaga last night, and the number one seed Virginia survives over Purdue. I've got some um, opinions on the end of that game. I know Jordan Cornett posted uh, there was a situation late in that contest where uh, Purdue was up by three, and uh, Virginia had the ball, and uh, time was winding down, and Purdue fouled them, sending him to the line to get two. And they made the first, missed the second. It was tipped all the way back out into the backcourt. And Virginia was good enough to get the ball into the front court, And they got a shot off at the buzzer, tied the game. I thought it was the right move by Matt Painter and Purdue. Um, a lot of people disagree. So we'll talk about that uh, in the 11 o'clock hour. Lots of other things we'll hear from the coaches getting ready. Uh, some some pretty amazing coaches. you got Calipari against Pearl, and you also have... Today, uh, we have Coach K against Tom Izzo. So, lots to talk about. But let's get to the calls. 312-332-3776. Talking White Sox, talking Cubs. They both lose 8-6 to yesterday. Sox 0-2 with Giolito going today. Cubs are 1-1. One one. They got Cole Hamels as they wrap up the series in Texas. Let's go first to Michigan City and Mark. Mark, thanks for jumping on in. What's up? Hey, Fred. How you doing today? I'm doing well. What's going on? Good. I got to talk to you and Murphy yesterday. I want to first commend you uh, for supporting the Chicago Fire uh, soccer, professional soccer. I'm, I'm going to plan on attending a game here, hopefully coming up in April or May. Never been to a professional soccer game. And I think you do an outstanding job of keeping people around Chicago informed on the, the world's greatest international sport. It is. Uh, it is. And uh, they got a win yesterday. So I'm, we're going to talk more about it later. But, uh, yeah, thanks. I appreciate it. I, I, I never liked, I never liked the sport. I sat down, gave it a chance during a World Cup and way back in 1990. And ever since then, I've been a huge fan. So I'm going to give it a look, a good look too, Fred. Now to Kyle Schwarber, a great for Kyle Schwarber laying down that punt. That proves there you don't got to change a rule on a ship. That's right. The batter, you you don't have to. If, if a team wants to put seven fielders around second base, let them do it. You don't got to change no rule on a ship for anyone or anything. Uh, Dylan Cease, uh, what's the latest you heard about him getting called up maybe before the end of the year? Did they want a whole year with him in the minors and bring him up next year uh, based on maybe uh, the contractual thing of seven-year service? Uh, no, you know what? You know what I heard about him, Mark. And remember last year when they brought Kopech up, uh, they yeah. wanted to wait till uh, Kopech had enough innings in the minor leagues, and they don't think that Cease had enough innings last year. Uh, if they did, he would have been one of the guys possibly for a fifth starter this year, and they wouldn't have had to go out and get Irvin Santana. But they're going to let Dylan Cease go in the minors, and when he gets to a certain number of innings, the odds are he'll come up just like Kopech did last year. That's great news, and uh, I'm, I'm going to attend some games. I know I called in yesterday about the uh, 
you know, uh, when uh, Rickon claims social media, maybe for losing uh, right. the, the Masada right. deal. I'm still a dedicated White Sox fan. I've never seen uh, uh, Eloy bat yet, even on TV. I'm going to attend a couple games and watch Eloy and hopefully see uh, Dylan Cease pitch a game later in the year. Yeah, that would be nice. Mark, appreciate the call and appreciate the kind words. Yeah, it's uh, it's going to be fun watching Eloy Jimenez. He just, he's a kid. He's got a big smile on his face all the time. And, uh, you know, he's one of the keys. And Steve Stone brought it up when we played the first major league hit that he got. Uh, l- listen to it again because it was pretty important. The other day, he looked really bad on a couple sliders, and it was slider, slider, slider. The first time up, I think he had five sliders thrown his way. Yesterday, he gets his first Major League hit. Give it a listen, and then listen to what Steve Stone says. On the ground, up the middle, and the first hit for Eloy Jimenez is a ground ball single in late March 2019. It will not be the last. He adjusted. There's the slider, and with the defense the way it is, it's a base hit. Well, now he'll have a keepsake for the rest of his life as that ball will exit the field of play. And the irony of this game is his first hit came on a slider. There you go. The first hit came on a slider. You heard Stone say he adjusted. And that's one of the big things that you need. A kid coming up from the minor leagues, all the hype that he has received, and with the ability to adjust and adjust quickly. There are many, many ball players in Major League Baseball who have taken a few years to adjust to pitching in the big leagues. I'm not going to name any of them. You can probably think of who they are. There's a bunch of them. There are guys that don't adjust. And still would hit the pitches that got over the plate or the pitchers were, you know, left one out over the plate, was unable to hit their spot and they would knock it. Like Soriano was a guy that if you threw the ball down and away on a slider down and away, he was swinging. He was swinging because it's like he could never hold up on it. And for Eloy Jimenez, after being slidered to death in the the opening game, for him to get his first big league hit. And again, it wasn't the most beautiful hit in the world. It was a six or seven hopper past second base in the center field. He did get another hit later in the game, too. So he had a couple of hits yesterday. But it wasn't the most beautiful hit in the world. But it got him to hit. One less thing for him to worry about. Now he can go out, concentrate on hitting the ball, concentrate on playing left field, doing whatever it is he needs to do. So that was nice to see yesterday. Three one two three three two three seven seven six. We got to the south side. Is it uh, Ryab? Rob. Rob, what's up? Going? What's going on? Hey, good morning, morning, Fred. Oh, Rob, uh, what's happening? Hey, hey, old time, buddy. yeah, old time, but big White Sox fan. Good hearing you, man, and. I didn't get a chance to call in yesterday. I was running, but I uh, heard you and Murph, and uh, I man, just, hey, please be my best to Murph. I definitely so, uh, will. What's going on? Okay, let's okay, let's talk White Sox baseball, Fred. Hey, thanks for pointing that out about him and Ed, what, what uh, Steve Stone said. Uh, and, and now we kind of hear, uh, get a chance to see what all the hype was about uh, him and Ed, uh, Fred, you know, being able to make adjustments, you know, with certain pitches. So, but that that was a very very key point. But I was really want to call about um, Yohan Mikala because Fred, the thing about it, it's been only two games, but it's a continuation of what he's been doing this spring. And the best thing about it, he's not striking out. He's hitting from both sides of the plate. So, uh, and because he struggled last year, Fred. But you have to keep remembering, this guy was a number one prospect. So 
Um, been patient with him. He's he's looking good. Uh, our last point is um, do have concerns about Giolito. Yeah, uh, we'll see what he does today, but uh, didn't show too much um, during the screen. So he was pitching, you know, you know, working on a few things, just pitches, uh, slots change. But uh, Fred, yeah, he he's he's struggling. So, uh, but again, just good seeing him in there, Johan, and um, hopefully Tim Anderson to kind of pick up from where he ended last year because I was expecting some good things from him. So those are my thing. Always good talking to you, Fred, particularly talking about White Sox baseball. Have a good day. You too. It's always great talking to you. Uh, when uh, I, was, I should have been should have been expecting the call because anytime we're talking uh, White Sox baseball, we're going to get into that. And, uh, he, yeah, it's nice to see Jimenez adjusting early on. He's the kind of hitter that what he did in the minor leagues, you're hoping that it's going to come through. And the thing with Moncada and – Rob brought a gr- the great point is that he's a top prospect. He was one of the top two or three prospects uh, when the deal was made, when the White Sox sent uh, Chris Sale over to Boston. Um, you know, Kopech, Moncada, they got to pan out. Otherwise, you look at it and people are going to say, well, look what you gave up. You gave up a guy that's one of the best pitchers in the game of baseball. Didn't look that way the other day. We'll talk more about that later on in the show. Uh, but... Moncada maybe needed the change. Maybe he's not a second baseman. Boston had him playing at third base for the short number of games they had him up with in the big leagues. He struggled, struck out a lot, and he's not striking out. And again, just two games, but it is a continuation of what we saw in the spring, and I think that's a really, really good thing. Uh, I'm looking forward to that. Their lineup is out for today's game as they take on the Royals. There's a, I'm going to run their lineup down, and I'm going to talk about another problem. That they have. Uh, Larry Garcia is in center field. Uh, Moncada at third. Abreu DHing. Yonder Alonso is at first. Uh, Eloy Jimenez is in left. Daniel Palka batting sixth in right field. Tim Anderson is a shortstop. Uh, James McCann is catching. Yomer Sanchez at second base. So they have three switch hitters in Sanchez, Garcia, and Moncada. You've got uh, lefty Yonder Alonso, lefty Daniel Polka going against Jorge Lopez for the Kansas City Royals today. Now, looking at the lineup, Larry Garcia is going to be running his tail off from left center to right center because he's got to cover up for Eloy Menez in left and Daniel Polka in right. Polka made some bad moves yesterday. Uh, there was one ball, and I heard it on the radio, and they said, Polka goes back, back, off the wall, and I looked. I saw the replay, and this happens numerous times. uh, Hayward has done this for the Cubs. There are times where they think the ball's going to go high off the wall, so they back away, and the ball hits near the bottom of the wall. That happened yesterday to Polka. Polka didn't think the ball was, you know, he thought the ball was going to bounce too high off the wall, backs up, the ball hit about three feet from the wall, or I'm sorry, from the ground. He could have caught the ball if he took the other step back. But Daniel Polka is trying to work on his outfield play. And he needs to turn around and hit the cutoff, man. It's one of the most basic things in baseball. You're an outfielder. I don't care how strong your arm is. Make it strong to the cutoff, man. 
Uh, I have a book, and I was going through my garage the other day, and it's called the Major League Baseball Handbook. Chuck Tanner and some other people got together, and they diagrammed where every position player is supposed to go on every situation that may pop up, where the cutoff man is supposed to go, where the throw is supposed to go. If the ball goes to right field, the runner's on first, where's the cutoff guy go? Where's the right fielder supposed to go? Daniel Paul, I should make get a copy of this book, which is almost impossible to find, and uh, get it to Daniel Paul and all the White Sox outfielders uh, because I don't care how strong your arm is, I don't care how strong you think your arm is, you need to hit the cutoff men. People are there for a reason. And until the White Sox figure these kind of things out, their defense is going to cost them games. Now, hopefully, when other young kids come and play the outfield for the White Sox, they'll be okay. Daniel Polk is there right now. He needs to continue to get better on a daily basis. Not sure which guy is the White Sox outfield coach, I don't know if it's Daryl Boston if he played outfield. Not sure who it is, uh, but they've got to work on this guy because you're going to lose runs, which is going to make your offense need to produce more. And Tim Anderson, I did say he's got a fresh slate. I'm not going to criticize him. Two games in, two errors. That's all I'm going to say. I'm going to give Tim Anderson the benefit of the doubt. Stole a base yesterday. Hit the ball, Timmy. Steal some bases. Play better defense. Stop throwing the ball away, and uh, you'll be okay. You'll be the the shortstop the White Sox are going to keep for a few years. We'll see if that's the case. Cup fans, you want to jump in, talk about Darvish, talk about what you saw from Kyle Edwards yesterday, your concerns. You've got Cole Hamels going against the Rangers today. Then it's off to Atlanta, another good team. Then it's to Milwaukee. Another good team before you come home to open your season at Wrigley Field on April 8th. 312-332-3776. Fred Hubner with you. Top of the hour. We talk NCAA tournament right here on ESPN 1000. This is Chicago's Game Day. Only on ESPN 1000 at ESPNChicago.com. Welcome back. It's a sunny Sunday. It's funny. Earlier in the week, low 60s. On my uh, thermostat in the car, thermometer in the car, whatever. Today, driving in, 26. Come on, really? A 40-degree change. I know it's Chicago. I don't, I, 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 I expect this kind of weather. It's just when you, when you tease us with a 62 or 63 or 64 and go back to 20, that's frustrating. Another thing frustrating, the White Sox defense. To talk more about that, we go to Willowbrook and Owen. Owen, what's going on? Hi, Fred. How are you? I'm doing okay. Hey, Fred, I heard you talk about the Sox defense, and I, I like Renteria, but Renteria is like every other Sox manager, including even Ozzy. Managers fall in love with the bat before they do the glove. And and I'll tell you this right now, that Adam Engel should be our starting center fielder if we want to win ball games with Garcia, Lurie Garcia and Wright. Let the pitchers throw pitches and let your defense go get the ball. Because I will tell you this, this pitching staff is not good enough to overcome extra pitches. Let me give you a quick quick example, even going back to Ozzy. In 06, when we ended up getting rid of Rowan and we ended up putting Anderson in center field, even, yeah. we got John McColiak, who cost us eight games even back then. We would have made the playoffs if we had a good, out, good outfield. The Sox, the defense in the outfield hasn't been good since Ventura's first year in 2012. And until they realize that we have to play defense first, 
they aren't going to do anything. You bring up a great point about the defense because, and I love Adam Engel. I was hoping he would be a guy that could actually improve his hitting, and he really struggled in the spring training again. Um, because if he could hit 250 or 260, he'd be out there all the time. Um, but you're right. I think it's all a baseball, though, Owen. I don't think it's just the White Sox. I think most of baseball. I mean, uh, Mookie Betts is a great right fielder, but he also hits the hell out of the ball. You know what I mean? Uh, they, you need to be, you need to be able to do both. Right. I agree with, I agree with that, Fred. But Mookie Betts is, is, hits the hell out of the ball. We don't have, we don't have players that, that make that much of a difference with the bat over defense, I don't think. And and I'll tell you this. I mean, look, Rodon ends up going five in the third innings. If he has a defense behind him, maybe he goes six in the third inning. I agree. I agree. And, and they don't save pitches for this this pitching staff. And until Renteria realizes that, they're not going to they're not going to be on a winning. They're not going to be a. It's not sexy. It's not sexy to catch the ball. You'd rather slug your way. And it's tempting for every manager in baseball to play offense, which this game is trying to be all about. But I'd rather see guys go get the ball, protect our pitches a little bit more, and take our chance with that. Because I'll tell you this right now, I think the Sox have a pretty good back end of the bullpen. I think we, if, if they can get to the seventh, eighth inning, and, and they got a one or two run lead, I'll take my chance with this team. Yeah. But I don't think they can get there. Yeah, you know, and I agree. Owen, thanks for the call. I agree with you about the back end. We had a chance to see Herrera and uh, Colome come in yesterday, and uh, I agree. They're also guys that maybe when we get to the trade deadline, there's some teams that may want to pick those guys up, and the Sox may want to flip them. But until then, I think it's a really good part of the bullpen. Uh, I, I really do not like Nate Jones. Maybe as a guy, he's fine. I know we heard a lot of that this week with Jordan Howard. Maybe Nate Jones is a tremendous guy. He's a wonderful interview. Uh, a friend of everybody in the locker room. I don't want to see Nate Jones come into the game. He did yesterday through a wild pitch, which Steve Stone said that Castillo could have and probably should have blocked. He didn't. And then he gives up a hit, run scores, and that was the start of a four-run inning. Okay, or the middle of a four-run inning. So I don't want to see Nate Jones. I do want to see NCAA basketball. We'll talk about it when we come back after this on ESPN 1000. This is Chicago's Game Day, only on ESPN 1000 at ESPNChicago.com. He was going the right way. Cohen all the way. Touchdown, Chicago. Levine, he goes right by. Chicago's game day. Garcia's home. Hanson scores. Sox win. What a comeback. Zabisky escapes again, and he's got plenty of room to run. Look at him go. There's the athleticism for the rookie. Back toward the wall. It's gone. This is Chicago's game day, only on ESPN 1000 and ESPNChicago.com. Welcome back in. Fred Huebner with you all the way until 1 o'clock, leading you up to NCAA Tournament Action. A couple more games today. There are two teams already on their way to Minneapolis, Texas Tech, and Virginia after wins yesterday. We're going to talk about that in a second. Michigan State takes on Duke in the second game today. The first game, Auburn going against Kentucky. And as you heard, Chuma Okike, the torn ACL, not playing 
And uh, that's going to be quite a blow. Uh, so we will see how things go for those games. You can hear them right here on ESPN 1000. To talk more about the NCAA tournament, we go on over to NBC Sports Chicago. Scott Phillips, nice enough to join me. Scott, how are you today? I'm doing great, Fred. How are you? I'm okay. You know, Scott, there are years where you get to the Elite Eight and then the games on Saturday don't live up to it. and There may be blowouts. Uh, last night could not have been more exciting, I don't think, uh, than, than those two games turned out. It was it was pretty thrilling. The entire, both games, each one going all the way down to the end. You couldn't ask for much more. Yeah, definitely. There's a lot of high-level shot-making in both games. We didn't see defensive slugfests like maybe we saw on Friday night with some of these Sweet 16 games. And that Virginia-Purdue matchup is going to be one of the more memorable tournament games we've seen in the last few years. It seems like Purdue had two great games this week, that overtime win over Tennessee and now falling short last night. But Carson Edwards definitely embedding himself into the American basketball psyche with the way that he performed in this NCAA tournament. Yeah, he was absolutely unbelievable. And it's interesting. I didn't know this and wasn't even thinking about it during the course of the game. But someone tweeted out earlier today that he had no assists last night. Now, I don't know necessarily if that's a bad thing when you're scoring 40 points. No, but he definitely (laughs) needed some help. And we saw how well Ryan Klein shot the ball in that win over Tennessee in the Sweet 16, hitting those numerous big shots to alleviate some of what a Carson Edwards has to carry on the offensive end. And that's ultimately what the Boilermakers did not have last night. They didn't have that secondary score step up. Edwards had to do a lot of it himself, and he could for most of the game. But if you're going against a number one seed like Virginia, you have to have a little bit more help over the course of 45 minutes than what Carson Edwards had. Okay, what is your thought about uh, what happened at the end of the game? Because Ryan Klein goes to the line. He he can make it a two-possession game. He misses a free throw. Purdue then fouls with 5.9 left because they're up three. Virginia makes the first. The next one gets tapped all the way back to the backcourt. Clark finds Diakide, who hits the jumper, to tie it. Many people say they don't like that foul. You're up three. Just play defense. What were your thoughts when that happened last night? I liked it when they fouled up three, and truthfully, it worked out for them in that Ty Jerome missed that key free throw. And, you know, you have two good free throw, or I'm sorry, three point shooters on Virginia and Kyle Guy and Ty Jerome. We've seen so many times in this NCAA tournament, including Carson Edwards fouling Lamonte Turner of Tennessee on that final possession, how easy it is to give up a tying three pointer or to foul a three point shooter in that situation. So to foul while up three, I think, is a nice play. But again, it ended up where I got back tapped in the backcourt. The Akita gets a shut off tie game overtime. And there's going to be some people who second question and second guess that decision. Yeah, it was it was pretty amazing game all the way down. And you had mentioned the Tennessee game. I didn't think anything would top that. And I think last night was one of it. It's funny because last week everyone's saying, man, this Purdue-Tennessee this is the best game of the tournament. Now last night people are saying, ah, this Purdue-Virginia, it's the best game of the tournament. You know, Kyle Guy, a guy uh, who was not hitting his three-pointers. Second half, I don't know, he hit four or five and he was just unstoppable. It was so great to see these guys step up when they needed to. And especially after last year, being the first one to lose to a 16, and then you come in, there was negative, not negativity, but a lot of people doubted them, despite the fact that they were a number one seed. Uh, yesterday, I guess, um, Coach Bennett, he made uh, an extra 250 for getting to the Elite Eight and an extra 250 for getting to the Final Four. Not bad cash to make, but it seemed like there's a little bit of a monkey off of his back and the entire team now. They seem to be playing a little bit more at ease after winning several games. 
Yeah, you're absolutely right, Fred. I think the key was getting over the mental hump for this Virginia team. They were obviously shaky in that first matchup against Gardner-Webb where the nation was talking about whether they might be another number one seed to go down to a number 16 seed. And again, they had some stretches where guys like Kyle Guy went cold throughout the Sensei tournament. But, you know, to step up in a lead eight game like that where a guy like Carson Edwards is making shots at a high level, and you have guys like Ty Jerome and Guy making three-pointers and stepping up, that says a lot for Virginia, and that should give them a huge boost heading into the Final Four. There are always things that you see in games that, you know, in every sport, you say, well, you're never going to see something like that. What was the last time you saw a guy get a technical for reaching out of bounds and knocking the ball out of a guy's hands? They did that in the uh, Gonzaga-Texas Tech game. I haven't seen that happen. I know it can happen, but I don't think I've seen that happen in a long time. No, some bizarre circumstances, particularly because it's a senior in Josh Perkins for Gonzaga who has played so many key minutes before. And to see that kind of slip up late in the game when they had a little bit of momentum and they maybe had a sliver of a chance to get back in, it was disheartening because we saw, again, a great back and forth between the Red Raiders and the Bulldogs, a lot of high-level shot-making between the teams down the stretch, and it just didn't end the way that that Virginia-Purdue game ended because of that technical foul. Yeah, it, it was uh, pretty unbelievable. It was only a two-point game. The technical makes it four. They make their free throws, and it, it, it's it's interesting because there were some teams earlier on in the tournament who were not making their free throws, and you see how important those free throws are as you get down, as it gets whittled down from 32 to 16 to 8, and now down getting down to four. You see how important those free throws are, not just at the end of the game, but all game long. Definitely. It's why Texas Tech is part of the reason they're in this Final Four. They're not only the number one defense in the country, but to close out that game 16 of 19 from the free throw line, having closers like Jared Culver and Matt Mooney and David Moretti, that really shows how good this uh, Red Raiders team is and what Chris Beard has put together. And, you know, when they get ahead, it's similar to Virginia. They're tough to play from behind because of that defense and that free throw shooting. Talking with Scott Phillips from NBC Sports Chicago. Two more games today. You can hear him right here on ESPN 1000. Kentucky uh, taking on Auburn. Now, Kentucky number two seed. Auburn a five. They've already pulled some upsets. What are your thoughts on this one coming in today? For Auburn, it's going to come down to perimeter shooting. They've been the hottest three-point shooting team in the NCAA tournament. We saw them put 97 points on a North Carolina team that loves to get up and down the floor and put up points. So that was kind of a mesmerizing second-half shooting display by the Tigers. But they're missing Chuma Okiki, who's been their key player over this last month. They've won 11 straight games in large part because of Okiki's versatility and being a matchup nightmare. We saw that against North Carolina, and that's going to be a huge part of what's missing against Kentucky. The Wildcats have already beaten Auburn twice this season in SEC play. They're going to have a player that they need to keep healthy themselves in P.J. Washington, but I like the Wildcats in this one. Playing without Okiki might be a little bit of a struggle for Auburn. They do have D'Angelo Pirafoy, who can space the floor and do a couple things that Okiki does, but he's not nearly the defensive presence, and he can't put it on the floor nearly as well as Okiki does. But Auburn could stay in this if they continue to stay hot from three-point range. Jared Harper and Bryce Brown, two of the better shooters in this field. And it wouldn't surprise me one bit if Auburn made this one a lot closer than the game we saw back in February where Kentucky blew out Auburn. You know, Scott, we, we see how the game and how all games have changed, and now they don't hesitate to talk sometimes about lines. Last night, the uh, Purdue game, uh, it was Virginia minus four and a half, and it got overtime, and you figure, okay, there's no way this game's going to change, and all of a sudden, free throws at the end, other things, and Virginia wins by five. Uh, I guess it was a big a big swing in that in Vegas. In, in the Auburn game, earlier you had uh, Bruce Pearl leading up to the previous game saying, everybody just take the over, and 
and he was exactly right. I think I came up to like 170 something and the over was like 168. But, you know, you, you see that. Do you expect, I mean, is it going to have to be that kind of game for them to beat Kentucky? Are they going to have to hit their shots, hit a, hit 90 points? I don't think they're going to have to hit 90 because Kentucky's not nearly the same offensive team as when P.J. Washington's fully healthy. They only really had two scores in that last round win with Tyler Hero coming up with 19 and P.J. Washington playing well. But if guys like Keldon Johnson are struggling for Kentucky, then they're just as comfortable playing a slow, grinded-out game in the 60s or the 70s as we saw in the Houston win. So Auburn doesn't need to get to 90, but they definitely have a better chance of winning if they do because they've got to hit those perimeter shots, as I mentioned, that's really the basis of their offense. And if they're not turning you over and they're not hitting three-pointers, then Auburn's offense can struggle in the half court. Okay, I saved the best for last, or at least what a lot of people are saying is the best. There may be some people saying, well, I can miss Auburn, Kentucky, but I'm not going to miss uh, Duke and Michigan State. Uh, Tom Izzo, a guy who made, uh, you know, uh, all the, all the news segments earlier this year, or, you know, this tournament for yelling at his player. Heaven forbid you yell at the guy, but now you've got Izzo against Coach K. You've got Duke with their freshman, uh, going against Michigan State. It's so amazing because we all talk about Zion Williams. And we always talk about R.J. Barrett, but it was Trey Jones that got him to where they are with what he did in the second half of their last game. Yeah, that was critical for the Blue Devils. We know how good R.J. Barrett and Zion Williamson are. They're going to get most of their buckets from two-point range. They're not great three-point shooters. And for Jones to hit a couple of those three-pointers, particularly with Cam Reddish being out with a mysterious knee injury 10 minutes before tip-off, Duke really needed that perimeter spacing in order to get past. And I think they're going to need someone like Jones to come up and hit shots again today. We don't know where Cam Reddish's status is heading into this one. And, you know, Duke is going to continue to need guys to space the floor around Williamson and Barrett. That's been their major question mark all season. And with guys like Reddish and Jack White battling injuries right now, a lot of it's going to come on to Trey Jones to continue to hit those shots. Is Michigan State just going to have to play the game they've played all season in order to beat Duke, or is there something they have to do special? I think their freshmen continue to have to step up. Aaron Henry and Gabe Brown in the last round really did a great job of stepping up and hitting some perimeter shots. That was a huge key for them because Cassius Winston, their starting point guard, is an All-American caliber player. We know how good he is, but there's times where he has to carry a heavy burden on offense. And if guys like Henry and Brown are hitting shots and making it easier on Nick Ward and Xavier Tillman on the inside, then Michigan State's as balanced as any team in this field. And really impressive effort in that win over LSU, but I think it comes down to guys like Brown and Henry hitting shots. Okay, as we let you go, uh, Scott, we appreciate you jumping on. How is your bracket looking? My bracket's looking okay, but I got to say that Texas Tech win over Gonzaga hurt me a little bit. I had Gonzaga making the Final Four out of that one. Had Virginia, and I have Duke, and then the Midwest region for me is wide open after North Carolina lost to Auburn. But you know, going to be fascinating to see what happens today. A lot of chalk leading up to this, but I think it's led to some great Sweet Sixteen and Elite Eight games this weekend. Yeah, it's funny. I had uh, North Carolina winning it all. I think I had a beaten Michigan State in the final. So um, once North Carolina lost, and I, and I didn't get into any pools or anything else. I just filled out a bracket for the heck of it. So I think on the ESPN pool thing I'm in, I mean, uh, I'm somewhere in the three or four million uh, position. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I have no chance, but at least it was fun while it lasted. Uh, Scott, appreciate you jumping on. Some great games yesterday. Hopefully today's are just as good. We appreciate you jumping on. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having us on, Fred. Appreciate it. Scott Phillips, NBC Sports Chicago. Some great stuff getting you ready for the NCAA tournament as the games will be here on ESPN 1000 throughout the day. And again, you know, you can't wait for that Michigan State game. Um, 
it's interesting. You wait for the tournament. You there's so much hype. You get to selection Sunday, then you got Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and then boom, another Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and we're in that second week of Sundays. It's over that quickly. You go from 64 down to four, and that's what we're going to have at the end of the day today. Can't wait for these games. Should be fun, especially that Duke and Michigan State game. And then heck, the way the games went yesterday, I wouldn't be surprised if Auburn uh, puts up points and gives uh, Kentucky quite a battle. It'll be interesting to see how it all plays out. Let's go back to the phones. We go on out to Elgin and Paul. Paul, thanks for hanging in there. What's going on? Hey, Fred. I just, I had a question at least. It's sort of like the rules clarification. At the end of the the regulation there where after Purdue followed him, put him on the line, he makes the first shot from Virginia. Then he intentionally misses the second shot. The guy from Virginia tipped that all the way to the backcourt. Is that not over and back? Because Purdue never touched the ball. Yeah, you know, that's a good question. Um, I, it didn't come up, at least in, I watched some of the post game after that. That part didn't come up. Um, I think because he didn't necessarily have possession. You know what I'm saying? Okay. He, because he didn't have both hands on the ball uh, and had yeah, possession I mean, of it. You know, I mean, my question, you know, it's sort of like, isn't really you're shooting a free throw on that half of the court? Aren't you guys really in possession on that half of the court? You know, yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I mean maybe I got to get a rules guy on to figure that one out. Let me ask you a question though: How surprised were you that when the ball went back that far, they were still able to get it up and get that last shot at? Oh, it was stunning. It was I, five point nine. Stunning. Was, I mean, it was a fantastic end. I mean, he was at the line with five point nine seconds. So you figure yeah, it I, goes off the rim as soon as it goes off the rim, the clock is supposed to start. I'm pretty sure it did, and it goes gets tipped all the way to the backcourt. Clark has a great pass, and then the guy hits the shot. At you know, he definitely got it off, and it was perfect. What were your thoughts? And I've been asking because uh, Jordan Cornett uh, tweeted he doesn't like fouling the guy when you're up three. He would rather you just play solid defense. What are your thoughts on that? I think it was a it was a good move myself. I, I completely agree with the coach to make the foul and put him on the line there because what are the odds of that ever happening? I know. You know, tipping it all the way to the backcourt, he throws it up there. The guy makes turns, makes the shot. Uh, to me, more power to Virginia that hey they pulled it off. You, you know, know, you know the hardest part of that whole play is intentionally missing and still hitting the rim. Yeah. Because intentionally missing, hitting the rim, you guys getting the rebound, they're knocking all the way back. Yeah, the stars were aligned for him, and, and I mean, I you know, it just was one of those things. At least when I saw it, I went, "Is that not over and back?" Yeah, you know what, Paul? Well, I'll put a shout out to any any uh, referee out there. Maybe there's a referee listening, or a referees, uh, some guy from the referees association that knows the rules. We'll see if we get another call in. Okay. All right. Thanks, Fred. Thanks, Paul. Uh, NCAA tournament continues today. 312-332-3776. Yeah, it's been, just been some tremendous games. And, uh, you know, I, I've not been involved in a pool where, you know, I had a lot of interest, where I had a lot riding on the line. Um, but when you see, uh, what these kids do and what they put out there. And I know there are people saying, oh, look, they're, they're crying. There's a, hey, these guys bust their tail. This is the, this, uh, for a lot of these kids, this is it. I mean, once this season ends, they're going to put their suits on. And I don't mean their uniforms, put their suits on and look for a job in the business world. There are many of these kids that will not be playing basketball again, uh, anywhere near this kind of level. 
And uh, I, th- that's what makes these games so interesting. That's what makes it so exciting. And I saw some other comments, and you want to jump in, 312-332-3776. If you are a referee, if you know the rule, if the rule was called correctly, or if it is possession and you can't tip it all the way into the backcourt, let us know, 312-332-3776. Someone had mentioned, and I know when TBS and TNT and True TV and all that stuff, when they started doing it and they brought in Kenny Smith and Charles Barkley, I didn't. I didn't quite understand because you didn't think much during the season these guys were going to be watching. Well, it was so cool to have them here, and I, I really love the passion they bring, and it helps that Barkley's Auburn squad is playing today because the other day when Auburn played North Carolina, Kenny Smith came out in his North Carolina jersey. Now, I'm pretty sure it was the one he wore when he played. Uh, if not, they made it up for him, which would be kind of weird. Um, but he came out onto the set on TV with his North, bringing up, dribbling a basketball with his North Carolina jersey, and he was giving it to Barkley because Barkley wasn't wearing his Auburn jersey, which probably would not have fit. Pretty safe bet it would not have fit. Um, but I, they've done a really, really good job at breaking things down. And I think the coaches that they've had sitting, I mentioned this last week, but Porter Moser had, did a tremendous job. Uh, the Loyola coach, when he was sitting in last week, did a tremendous job breaking down some of these games. I remember him talking about Texas Tech in one of the games, talking about their defense, talking about what they do. And it's great to see a team that plays tremendous defense get this far. Gonzaga's a team that scored 90 points a game just about. They are held to 69 points yesterday. 75-69 the final. Texas Tech moving on to the final four in Minneapolis. Uh, Carson Edwards, we talked about it with Scott Phillips. Um, He was amazing. Now, Barkley, after the game, he was giving it to Virginia. He said, listen, Tony Bennett You've got to come up with a way to stop a guy who's the only guy beating you. Nobody else on Purdue had double-digit points. And I didn't realize that watching the game. But Carson Edwards, what he was doing was amazing. He's the first NCAA player in NCAA tournament history with multiple games of nine-plus three-point field goals. He also is just the eighth player in the NCAA tournament with five consecutive games with 25 points or more. Jerry West has the most consecutive with eight. So Carson Edwards puts his name on the numbers, uh, on the record list behind Jerry West. That's not bad company to have. But you look at it, and it was funny because they go after the game, and you figure Barkley's going to talk about Virginia, and he was criticizing Virginia for not figuring out a defensive game plan to stop Carson Edwards when he was the only guy beating you and nobody else was stepping up for Purdue. Again, uh, surprising to me. Uh, I love Barkley and Smith on NBA stuff when I watch it, but I was surprised at how good they've been or they have been uh, for the NCAA tournament. Your thoughts: three one two three three two three seven seven six. And um, the other thing, um, I mentioned it. Virginia coach Tony Bennett, two hundred fifty thousand dollar bonus for the win last night. He also got two fifty for the Elite Eight berth uh, on Thursday. So. Uh, some good stuff for uh, for him, okay? And it was nice to see his dad in the stands. Uh, you saw uh, Eifert's dad in the stands, uh, and it looked like after Eifert got the rebound um, the other uh, in that game yesterday for Purdue, 
that good things were going to happen, Purdue was going to win, and how it changes from them not only not winning, but then going to overtime and losing in overtime. And the number, four and a half. Uh, yeah, who would have thought they, they would lose that? I, I saw, it's weird that you see this so many times on Twitter now, um, that you see people with their ticket, and they will put their ticket on Twitter. One guy had a parlay that was a $400 parlay, and all he needed was Virginia. Um, no, he had Purdue, I think, uh, plus five. No, he had, he had, how did he have it? He had, what ha- whatever happened, that game cost him. He had all the other ones. $400 was a bet. He would have won 10 grand. But because that game got out of hand and became a five point spread, it would have had to have been Purdue. Cause if he had, um, yeah, if he had the points with Purdue, um, he would have covered. So uh, that was pretty amazing. And also, there's a thing out there. I guess you could have a live bet out there and sell that to somebody. That's kind of weird. Why would you do that? I don't know. You would think you're you're hedging your bet. You're, you're out there selling your ticket, which still has a chance to win big money for less money. Uh, just because maybe you're a little concerned that it's not going to be that good. Uh, I got a couple of questions for you. I want to talk about some Bulls basketball, uh, also. And I know you're saying Bulls basketball. Why would you want to talk about Bulls basketball? Well, I've had a couple of times in my life, including in February, situations where I had a rapid heartbeat. Now, I'm not considering, I'm not, you know, comparing myself with Larry Markinen. He's a big, tall Finnish basketball player who uh, is now sitting out because he had a rapid heartbeat. And um, that can affect basketball players. I don't know if it's the same thing. I had I had a rapid heartbeat. I'm a lot older than him. I'll be 62 in May. Um, and I just stay young by hanging around with Black and I'm not hanging around. I don't want to give you the wrong opinion. Just hanging with him here in the studio at times when I work with him. But uh, I've had a thing called cardioversion where they put you under and then they shock your heart back in a rhythm, like hitting alt-control-delete on your heart and resetting it. And I had it back in uh, in February, uh, February 28th. Don't know if that's a situation that Larry Markin is going to run in, if he's going to have to take some medication for this. Um, but you always worry. You're always concerned when a player has something like this. So we'll talk about that when we come back. Um, your concerns about the Bulls and their health. Uh, there are a lot of guys out with injuries right now. The Windy City Bulls are pretty much doing okay. We'll talk about that. 312-332-3776 here on ESPN 1000. This is Chicago's Game Day, only on ESPN 1000 and ESPNChicago.com. Welcome in. About an hour from now, we'll be talking with Jesse Rogers, talking some Cubs baseball. They had a rough 8-6 loss last night after they were leading most of the game until, uh-oh, it was Joey Gallo hitting a big home run. A big home run. Um, and it cost the Cubs. It'll be Cole Hamels going today. Caratini starting today. The Scalso's starting. Hey, hey, what happened to this L? Every game's important stuff. Well, ask Jesse about that. Every game's important. Now you're starting Descalso and Caratini and 
um, see what other lineup changes there are as the Cubs wrap up their series down in Texas before going to Atlanta and then going to Milwaukee. In the next hour, in the uh, 12 o'clock hour, we're going to talk lots of baseball. Talk about Milwaukee, talk about uh, Harper, talk about Josh Hader, talk about a lot of things that are going on in baseball with Toronto and Boston. And we'll do that each and every week, talk a lot of baseball right here on ESPN 1000. Let's grab a couple of calls uh, in about 15 minutes. Uh, talk some Chicago Fire soccer as they were big winners yesterday, uh, getting their first win of the season. First, let's go to River North and Jeff. Jeff, you're on ESPN 1000. What's happening? Hey, how's it going? Okay, Jeff. How's your morning? It's so uh, far so, so good. I just wanted to explain to you why uh, selling your bet in-game or selling reselling your bet in, even before the game is like the newest, bestest thing ever. Okay. Uh, three reasons, really. Uh, the first is, um, so like I bought a $100 ticket, Auburn to win it all. Right. And uh, looking good until uh, Kit pulls his, uh, tor- tears his ACL. Right. I'm yeah. looking to sell that bet. Okay. And I'm going to get money for it. I'm going to get my money back. Well, at least that. But you would think you'd get even. Well, at this point, do you do you think you'll get your money back? I know I'll get my money back because actually I bought two $50 tickets. I already sold the 150 for twice as much as I paid. Okay. So now I can I can choose to hang on to the other 50 or get rid of it depending on the price. Right. The second reason why it's great is because while we're all sitting here waiting for the state of Illinois to make sports betting legal, I can go on PropSwap.com and I can buy somebody's ticket. That's, that's right. perfectly legal. Yeah, that's where I saw it. I saw it at PropSwap. Yeah. And the third reason is because I can give people better odds than they could get anywhere else. Because if I bought it at 60 to 1 and now I'm looking to get rid of it and the bookies are now listing it at, let's say, 25 to 1, I'm willing to give you 35 to 1. Okay. Makes so sense, I guess. A great it's, deal. it's relatively new, though, right? Uh, it's been around for a couple of years. Has it? Um, yeah, uh, you know, started in Vegas. Uh, they got, I think, uh, an office in Jersey now. But um, it's it's just the secondary market for sports bets, and it's not gambling because all you're doing is selling a piece of paper. Right. That's true. And, uh, do you, uh, and you can go on there now, and you can look, and you can see a lot of really good bets at a lot of really good odds, better odds than you're going to get offshore better odds than you're going to get from your bookie, very much better odds than you're going to get from a, a Vegas bookmaker. How much are you, I mean, you know, how much are you looking forward to sports betting here in Illinois? And I'm not talking about going to the 7-Eleven uh, and grabbing, you know, making a bet on the Cubs or something like that, but going to an actual facility that's got a Las Vegas type style with, you know, the, the, the wall with all the odds on it and all the games and things like that. Well, I think I think what's going to happen is I think for sure the racetracks and the casinos they're going to have that, and that'll be fun. But I, what I think is going to happen is, well, first of all, mobile is going to be necessary. Right. But I think the other thing that's going to happen is that maybe perhaps you can be able to go to a Buffalo Wild Wings, or you're going to be able to go to, like, the Country Club, you know, the big uh, golf resorts, and they're going to have small, intimate sports books, right. which gives you something to do, you know? I mean, you're... Well, the 19th, yeah. And all the TVs. Right. And yeah, go- golf courses, hole. 19th hole. That's a perfect time. Jeff, appreciate the call and thanks for, thanks for educating me. Uh, like I said, I saw the prop swap and, uh, someone was selling a bet and I don't remember which one it was, but I thought that was interesting. I had not seen that before. Again, uh, you know, you, I'm sure, 
I'm sure uh, the odds couple, Carmen and Mike North, uh, have seen it, and uh, maybe they'll even be discussing it uh, on their next show. I think it'll be next Friday, uh, 6 o'clock, right here on ESPN 1000. Some fire Chicago Fire soccer talk coming up in a minute or two. Let's go first to Park Ridge. And, John, you're on ESPN 1000. Hey, John. Hey, Fred. How are you? I enjoy listening to you. Thank you very much. What's happening? Um, you know, I... I hear about these proposed rule changes in Major League Baseball. You and Murph were talking about them yesterday, and the pitch clock always comes up. Now, I told your screener that you and I are approximately the same age. Do you remember when Bill Vec had the pitch clock on the Comiskey's uh, yeah, scoreboard? right up on top. Right. What, what, it was 20 seconds, right? Yep. It was either twenty or twenty-five. I think it was twenty, but uh, just to be safe, it could have it could have been twenty-five. But I'm pretty sure it was twenty. So this is not something new. I mean, I know it came and went, but it's nothing new. I had and heard then, I had heard that it was always in the rules. It just was that it was not. You know, they didn't uh, enforce it. Okay, and then one other thing, and I'll let you go. I thought I was the only guy in the world who really liked people. Oh, no. Are you kidding me? Pete Ward was one of my favorites, man. Growing up, Pete Ward, Ron Hansen, and Wayne Causey, and all these kind of guys. Johnny Romano. I'm an old-time Ken White Barry. Sox fan. Yep. Ken Berry. You know, I, I've compared Ken, I've compared Adam Engel to Ken Berry. Uh, I used to see Ken Berry make catches at Old Comiskey Park, and he would jump up and fall into the center field bullpen uh, back when they had the fence up there. Then there were those couple years where they took it down and made center field at Old Comiskey 440 to the base of the wall, and then yeah. they put him. Then they put him back up. But no, I was a big Pete Ward fan. Somebody the had to be auto, first autograph I ever got. Good old number eight. Well, think about it. And, and there's a book out there now about the American League pennant race from 1967, and the White Sox had an opportunity starting the final week of the season. I think they lost five straight games. They lost like a series to the. Washington Senators or something like that. But there's a new book out called, a relatively new book out called The American League Pennant Race from 1967. The White Sox were involved. There were like four teams involved in it. I can't wait to get it because I always thought that was the year, you know, Horland and Peters and guys like that. And and Tommy John, I think, was pitching for the Sox maybe back then. But, uh, yeah, Pete Ward, one of my favorites, John. I appreciate the call. Uh, I was talking about Pete Ward yesterday because uh, he was a third baseman for the White Sox. He used to blow on his hands. <sighs> He'd, like, make the fist and blow on his hands. He's the first guy I remember doing that at the plate. Um, batting gloves weren't a thing back then. So they would blow on their hands to warm their hands up. Uh, there were a lot of guys wearing gloves yesterday out at SeatGeek Stadium. We'll talk about it. We come back. The Chicago Fire getting a win there first of the season. We'll discuss it. We come back. Fred Huebner with you here on ESPN 1000. This is Chicago's Game Day, only on ESPN 1000 and ESPNChicago.com. Welcome back in. Fred Huebner with you. A lot of baseball talk next hour. Uh, we'll talk Cubs, Sox. And all of baseball as we are finally underway with the season. Some interesting stuff happening already. Not only with the Cubs and White Sox, but also with Milwaukee, with St. Louis, with a bunch of the other teams. So we'll talk about all that in the uh, 12 o'clock hour. Jesse Rogers will join us around 1230, discuss what's going on with the Cubs after yesterday's you Darvish outing and also Carl Edwards. Again, you can't figure out Edwards' ERA. He hasn't gotten a guy out yet. He's faced four. 
Um, three of them scored, and the other one uh, was on base when uh, they pulled Carl Edwards. So uh, we'll see. He'll get an ERA eventually. Uh, yesterday, out at SeatGeek Stadium, the Chicago Fire were taking on the New York Red Bulls. Red Bulls, who were losers to Orlando City uh, SC last week. Four of their players were off on uh, national duty, international duty with their national teams. They were back yesterday. Uh, it was cold. It was blustery out at uh, SeatGeek Stadium, formerly known as Toyota Park. The uh, Chicago Fire and New York scoreless in the first half, even though the Fire had opportunities in the first half. Alexander Katai nearly scoring on the first shot of the game in the 18th minute. Um, and he had another chance that was denied 23rd minute. Uh, Premislav and Frankowski playing for the fire, uh, sent a pass into, uh, Nemanja Nikolic and, uh, could have been his first goal of the season. Luis Robles with a nice save. But early on in the second half, the Chicago Fire getting on the board. Marcelo over the top, Frankowski after it, knocked away by Long. There's Nemanja Nikolic. The fire is celebrating like they've scored Nemanja Nikolic in the Chicago Fire half. It's just bouncing, and again, it's just direct played into the box, and you can just see the ball bounces, and it just kind of dies a little bit, comes off the post, and it's 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 in. I can just see it from here. Once the ball comes off the post, it's in the net as it comes out off Parker. The AR on the side in a great position to see that. Now, I'm not going to compare it in the highlights courtesy ESPN Plus, my guy Dan Kelly and also Frank Klopas with the uh, color commentary. Uh, I'm not going to compare it with uh, necessarily Patrick Kane scoring the uh, game winner in the Stanley Cup against Philadelphia and nobody saw the puck go in. But it's the worst thing that can happen for a play-by-play guy because, as you heard the description, the ball was in the 18, in the box, and Nemanja Nikolic sent it towards the goal. It was stopped, went off the post, went off the post, hit a player, Parker, Tim Parker, for the New York Red Bulls, went off his chest just past the line, the goal line, before he cleared it out, the associate or the assistant referee in the corner put his flag up, saying the ball was through past the line. It was a goal, and that was the fire's goal. So Nemanja Nikolic trying to get his first goal of the season. It was not to be, did not go in, but the fire then held on, um, played very very well in the second half. They also brought on one of their uh, new players, uh, Nico Gaetan, uh, came in. He was added to the attack. So they have guys like Nemanja Nikolic, Alexander Katai. They also have C.J. Sapong, who scored a goal uh, for the Chicago Fire this year. They have a, a lot of people in the attack. On the back line, they have had some struggles. They've been giving up some goals. But this was a match where they knew they were going to have to do some things with uh, the Red Bulls coming in. And they changed up their style a little bit. And head coach Valko Panovic talked about the goal and how they changed some things in order to get the victory over a very, very good New York Red Bulls squad. A hard, um, hard game for us. And uh, we learned that we are capable of playing games like this. It was very important for us to get the win, um, get against the team like this, and uh, to build our confidence, to build uh, uh, the spirit of our group and the cohesion. And I think today we saw that uh, when we are all on the same page, uh, the 11 or 13 players who played today, when we are all on the same page, we are f- uh, focused and concentrated uh, from the first second until the, uh, the last we're capable of doing great things. I also believe that in the first half, when we were um, fresher and when, we, when our plan was actually working very well, 
we, uh, we had more opportunities. We had opportunities, very uh, good opportunities to uh, increase our lead, but definitely uh, not being uh, the beautiest game of, of all. Uh, today was very important for us to get the win and, uh, and to get the, the prize for, for the whole hard work that this group was doing during all this uh, two months of the preseason and, and obviously a uh, few games in the season. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. It was a big win. They needed this. They let a game get away from them in Los Angeles to start the season. Then they had a couple of rough ones at home. Uh, they had a really tough game, a 4-2 loss to the Seattle Sounders just a couple of weeks ago. But there were some other good things that happened in this game. Mo Adams, who was were drafted by the Chicago Fire last year, he had been playing and working with the, the Memphis squad. And uh, they brought him up, and he was in the starting lineup yesterday trying to slow down Kaku from uh, the New York Red Bulls. And it's a situation where basically he was going to play the defensive midfield position and uh, try and slow down uh, the Red Bulls' attack. And they did a pretty good job of that. The Red Bulls had a lot of the possession. Possession's a really big factor in soccer. They keep the stats. Uh, but Mo Adams came, did a really good job. Mo Adams is known for doing this. He's done it since he's gotten to the uh, Chicago Fire after being drafted by them last year. And Mo Adams talked about that and the victory. Especially after having, you know, two home games before that, um, where we didn't get the win. So I think it was, you know, extremely crucial for us to get the victory tonight. Uh, today, sorry, um, and it will set us up perfectly for Toronto next week. To win the way you guys did, though, I mean, it really kind of hold things down. It doesn't mean to win the game that way. You know, that's, I think every game against the Red Bulls is going to be like that. You know, they make life difficult in the middle. Um, would we just try and match their intensity, if not, you know, exceed that? Um, and I think that's what we did. It wasn't a pretty game, but... Listen, at the end of the day, it's three points. Yeah, in the end of the day, it's a victory. And the first one for the Chicago Fire through their first four games, they now uh, go to the road. They go to Toronto next Saturday before coming home playing Vancouver on Friday night, April 12th. Uh, then they have another home game on uh, April 20th. Three home games uh, in March is not the perfect uh, thing for anybody. Uh, sitting outside. It was cold. It was windy. Uh, it did not rain. It did not snow till later in the evening. Uh, so yeah, it was cold. It was chilly out at Seat Geek Stadium, uh, in Bridgeview, but uh, the Chicago Fire coming away with the victory. And because of that, um, the fans left very, very happy. One person that was very, very happy is a homegrown player for the Chicago Fire. Uh, he signed a homegrown contract with the Fire in January. Uh, he'd been progressing through the Indiana Fire Juniors Academy. Is a member of the Fire Youth Development. Um, the, he is a midfielder for the Chicago Fire, but he also played the left back position yesterday. I mentioned how the back line of the Fire and their defense had been struggling. Um, one of the greatest players to play the game over in Europe and a name that's known by most people that are even are not soccer players, Sebastian Schweinsteiger for the Chicago Fire, who is a um, midfielder for the most part, is playing the center back position. He got the start of the center back position yesterday, and to his left was Jeremiah Gutjar. He is a young player out of uh, the University of Indiana. I'm sorry, Indiana University. You can you beat me up later for that. Uh, member of the Indiana defense that led the NCAA in shutouts and allowed just 13 goals last season. Now he's uh, a youngster, 21 years old, playing his first game, getting a start, playing the full 90 minutes for the Chicago Fire. And Jeremiah talked about his first game and the victory. The unbelievable experience. 
just being able to play um, in front of the fans with this group of guys, uh, hard to put into words. Just the joy that you can feel it, but it's hard to hard to to say kind of what it means. So, um, but it was just fantastic to get the three points with this group of guys. So, was there a moment out there when you really hit you that point of pressure? Um, I I think it. I was just telling myself I was like locked in every single second, every minute. So once the final whistle blew, I was like, we got the job done. Um, but I was just trying. I, trying to tell myself it's a simple game it's the same game just at, a, at another level so um that's kind of how i approached it yeah and the chicago fire with the win they uh get the three points they needed them they now have one win two losses one draw and uh so four games in they've got four points and uh we'll see how things go in toronto next week for the chicago fire toronto uh has a new addition alejandro pazuelo and uh, he had two goals and an assist as a designated player on a Friday night, a game I sat and watched uh, on my iPad as I was watching, uh, what the heck was I watching? I was watching baseball on the MLB Mix on my DirecTV, and I had the NCAA games on at the same time. It was a busy, busy Friday night, a busy weekend. We will talk more about the NCAA. Uh, we'll talk lots of baseball coming up next hour. One thing about the NCAA tournament um, that I wanted to make sure we got to uh, is Tom Izzo, the coach of Michigan State. He's getting ready to go up against uh, Zion Williamson and Duke, and he talks about Zion and um, you know what he might need or what he could probably use to help defend a guy like uh, Zion Williamson. Y'all know I'm a big football fan. Khalil, Khalil Mack is a guy that I kind of look at and say, geez, if I could borrow somebody from the Bears, maybe we could cover him. You know, I mean, he's uh, he's an incredible athlete. He's got the most incredible first step. That's why he's getting all those steals. Or he can take one dribble and cover more more space than most human beings that I know can do. And so, uh, and then he has the strength to finish at the end. So he's not Superman, but he's damn close. Yeah, he's very, very close, and Chicago Bulls fans hoping that indeed he will be there when the Chicago Bulls get the draft. And as we take a look at Tankathon and the NBA draft lottery, the lottery will be drawn and run on May 14th here in Chicago. Right now, the New York Knicks... The Phoenix Suns, Cleveland Cavaliers have a fourteen uh, percent chance to get that number one pick. They are one, two, and three. The Chicago Bulls have locked themselves in. They will not be worse than getting a twelve and a half percent chance at getting that number one pick. Uh, right now, they have a six and a half game lead. Uh, or deficit, if you want, on Atlanta. So the worst they can do is finishing fourth. That doesn't mean the worst pick they can get is fourth. That can all change. But right now they have a 12.5% chance of getting the number one pick. There's still a possibility they can lose some more. They have six games remaining after their loss last night. They got the Knicks, five games, I think. The Knicks, Washington, Philadelphia, the Knicks, and Philly again. So we'll see how that plays out. Lots of baseball talk next hour right here on ESPN 1000. This is Chicago's game day only on ESPN 1000 at ESPNChicago.com. Out in the left center. Cubs will grab the early lead as Bryant scores. And Baez will stick with a single. It's one to nothing here in the first. High drive out in the center. It 
is gone. Five to three. Kyle Schwarber with his first of the year. 26 of them last year for Kyle. He had one in spring training. It came in the final Cactus League game. He's about it throughout spring training. There's a little more crouch in his stance, trying to activate the legs. There's your fourth home run replay. I just think he's going to have a monster year. Jose crushes this ball. Deep left field, and that is home run number one in 2019 for the Sox. Suddenly, it's a one-run game. Moncada tags it to right field. Deep toward the alleyway. This ball is out of here. Yoan Moncada drills it. And it's 8-6 in the seventh. Don't look now in the rearview mirror, Kansas City. This is Chicago's game day. Only on ESPN 1000 and ESPNChicago.com. Ah, just a few baseball highlights from NBC Sports Chicago Plus and NBC Sports. Fred Hubner with you on ESPN 1000. We got Jesse Rogers from Texas. He'll be joining us at the bottom of the hour, twelve thirty. You want to jump on in, talk some baseball? Three one two three three two three seven seven six. We'll give you a quick recap of the Sox and the Cubs, and then we'll talk more about baseball around uh, the major leagues. And uh, if you want to jump in on any of that, we also got some interesting stuff. The Athletic did a um, baseball poll where they polled and talked to a bunch of players. I got some interesting things, at least to me. They're interesting, and hopefully they will be to you as well. Uh, don't forget the NCAA tournament games right here on ESPN 1000, beginning when I'm done at 1 o'clock. Tip, I think, at 120 for the first game. But uh, let's get let's get to baseball. Thank goodness it's here. Uh, after waiting for spring training to start, then it goes on for four to five weeks, and now finally baseball is here. Both the White Sox and Cubs opening on the road. The Cubs won their opener uh, not so well yesterday. Both the White Sox and Cubs lost yesterday by the same eight to six scores. You uh, Darvish had his struggles, and that's being nice. You um, Darvish struck out the first two guys he faced. I figure, okay, this is great. Everything's going to work out wonderful. This is a big year for you, Darvish, after he struggled last year and then got hurt. Um, so what happens? Well, he strikes out the first two guys, then he walks the bases loaded, strikes out as Drupal Cabrera. So you figure, okay, everything's going to work out nice. And um, But, you know, it, it's even better. Me just telling you, it's better with Len Casper describing it on uh, NBC Sports Chicago+. Plus. He went. Strikeout, strikeout. Walk, 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 strikeout. 3 nothing after one. Yeah, it was the first time through the lineup. Um, well, actually, the first time through the lineup. Uh, Texas, three strikeouts, six walks. Darvish walked three more guys in the second inning. He lasted just two and two-thirds. Three runs, two hits, and uh, Joe Madden talked about him. Great stuff. Velocity was good. Breaking ball was good. Everything was good. We just have to be in the strike zone a little bit more consistently. He did not complain of anything. He did not complain of anything. From the beginning of the game, the first two hitters, I thought, here we go. He looked like he was on, and then they got a couple things going on. He had to pitch through some messes there. And then, you know, the home run by Cabrera, I mean, he's had a lot of pitches by that point. 
and just trying to get him through there a little bit just to keep him stretched out is part of it also. I thought he looked good overall. I mean, like delivery and stuff out of hand. The command just wasn't there. I can't. I can't give you any other good reason than uh, what I was watching. Uh, Darvish tried to explain his disappointing start. A little bit, but just a first outing. Just, you know, the season started. So, yeah, but just a little bit. First couple guys, I feel good. But after that, I lost my command about, especially the fastball. It's difficult to lose your command that early in the game. Uh, But he did. Uh, the Rangers' first 10 batters uh, did not put the ball in play. It's the longest such streak to start a game in their their history. Uh, Jose Quintana then came in, uh, actually after Steve Ciszek. Ciszek came in, then Quintana came in, and I guess this was all a plan that uh, Joe Madden had because with all the days off in these first two weeks of the season, opening days and then a day off and another day and things like that, uh, there's time off. So instead of pushing... Um, some of your other starters, like your, you know, like John Lester, making him wait an extra day. Jose Quintana was available. He actually pitched uh, four innings yesterday. He struck out eight. The first Cubs reliever with eight strikeouts in a game since uh, Angel Guzman uh, back in 2006. And then in came Carl Edwards. And Carl Edwards had all kinds of problems. Gave up a hit, then a walk. Uh, to lead off the bottom of the eighth inning. And then Joey Gallo went deep. Uh, Gallo taking the first pitch to center field, a three-run homer. Um, then he walked another guy, and that was it for Carl Edwards. And Edwards didn't seem to have any answer for what happened. It's cold, I guess. Um, I don't really have too much to go with it. Um, I just know it wasn't a good pitch at the end of the day. Um, but... I mean, we'll see how another next time go. He'll probably be up. we got a lot of anger in him right now, so just put it out. He's got a lot of anger in him. How about the people that had to watch that stuff? Uh, the Cubs had the lead in the game uh, right off the bat. They scored three runs in the first inning. At bat, they had guys driving in runs, hitting the ball. Uh, you had three hits each for Wilson Contreras and also Kyle Schwarber. Schwarber with a home run. Uh, Baez had a couple of hits and drove in a run, but the Cubs go down eight to six in that one yesterday. As for the White Sox, the White Sox and, uh, Eloy Jimenez, he got his first hit as a major leaguer as he gets a single, uh, six or seven hopper up the middle to the right of second base into center field. He gets his first hit after, uh, striking out a couple times in the first game of the season. This was just the second game of the year. He did strike out on some sliders. He got his hit on a slider. He talks about his first hit. Bill Mason. Um, it's one of the fields you're never going to forget. Can you have the baseball, Lloyd? Yes. Have the ball. What are you going to yeah. do with it, you know? I put a, I'm going to put it in my room, and uh, I'm going to see it every day. <laughs> That's very cool for the youngster as uh, the White Sox lose the game, but uh, Eloy Jimenez had a couple of hits. White Sox did get their first and second homers of the season as they were losing 4 to nothing. Uh, Ronaldo Lopez just did not have it yesterday for the White Sox. Lopez for the game, struggling a tad as uh, we take a look here. Lopez, four-plus innings, six hits, four runs, four walks, 
couple of strikeouts. He threw 88 pitches. It snapped the streak of six starts in a row in which he had six innings last year. Uh, Manny Banuelos came in, went an inning, gave up two runs. Uh, Nate Jones didn't have it. Chase Fry struggled a little bit. But then we did see uh, Kelvin Herrera, and we also saw uh, Colome, Alex Colome, who was... Uh, going to be big parts for this White Sox team when they have leads uh, late in contests. Homers for Abreu, homers from Moncada. Moncada three for five. Nice to see. He had a two-run homer. Abreu a three-run shot. Uh, Tim Anderson, second game, second error. Uh, that's got to stop. You can't keep doing that. The White Sox wrap up the series today with the Royals. It'll be Lucas Giolito going for the White Sox before they head to Cleveland and open up Cleveland's home schedule on Monday. Uh, it'll be Ivan Nova getting the start in that one. So the White Sox and Cubs both lose by identical 8-6 to six scores uh, elsewhere around baseball. And if you want to jump in, talk some baseball, 312-332-3776. Lots of other baseball to get to. And let's start up in Milwaukee. What a series to start the season. You've got the Cardinals and the Brewers. Game one, and see, they don't have to have, take a day off because they got a roof over their place. It's Milwaukee, and they got a roof. We're Chicago. We have two stadiums, no roof. And that, not not that a lot of people would like to have a roof, but a retractable roof, how co- perfect is that? You don't get rainouts, nice temperature, every game. But anyway, uh, so in Milwaukee, they open the season with the Cardinals, a weekend series against St. Louis. And that first game ends with the Brewers having a one-run lead and Lorenzo Kane up and over the wall to make a catch on the final play of the game to end it. And they celebrate in Milwaukee. The second game in Milwaukee, you have Paul Goldschmidt. And Paul Goldschmidt hits not one, not two, but three home runs. Paul Goldschmidt, the Cardinals, lots of homers. And uh, St. Louis comes away with a win. Last night, you had a game where the Brewers... They're continuing to be homer happy. I think almost all the runs this in this series have been on home runs. Travis Shaw hit one, Mustakis hit one, and Christian Yelich hit one. Now for Christian Yelich, that's three homers in three games. That's uh, something you're going to have to watch. Uh, he was in the MVP race with Javi Baez last year. Christian Yelich continuing to play very, very well for the Milwaukee Brewers. They wrap up that series up in Milwaukee later on today. One of the notes from the game yesterday is Josh Hader came in, okay? And he came in to pitch the ninth inning. Josh Hader threw nine pitches. Josh Hader threw nine fastballs. Josh Hader for this season has thrown a total of 30 pitches. Every single one of them has been a fastball. Batters have swung 22 times so far. The results in the uh, 22 swings, 18 swings and misses, a foul ball, and one ball put in play. Last night, Josh Hader threw nine pitches, nine fastballs, nine strikes, nine swinging. Unbelievable 
Christian Yelich talked about the three strikeouts on nine pitches by his teammate Josh Hader. I've never seen one where it's like all swings and misses on fastballs. There's one foul ball the first pitch, and it was just domination. It was domination for Josh Hader. We all found out about him last year, and then there were some other things we found out about him. Uh, Josh Hader can throw the ball. He can throw it and throw it hard, and he's very difficult to hit. Yelich continued saying it's just unbelievable watching his teammate throw the ball. Yeah, I mean, he just has the deception, and the way his ball moves is um, you know, tough to pick up. Very, very tough Milwaukee Brewers uh, in this division. We've talked about it ever since Goldschmidt went to um, the Cardinals and uh, a couple of moves that the Reds made and Pittsburgh expecting to be better. Uh, this is going to be a very, very interesting National League Central throughout the entire season. And uh, the Cubs uh, will get a chance to play Milwaukee in a couple of, in about a week or so. Actually, one week from today, they'll be in Milwaukee wrapping up their series. Because after they finish up the series in Texas, they go to Atlanta and then to Milwaukee. One other note on Christian Yelich. He's the first player in Brewers history to homer in each of the team's first three games of the season. So... Um, Brewers fans are excited. Cub fans, not so much. You're going to be dealing with these Milwaukee Brewers all season long. Another thing, and I want to say his name is Tom Hardricourt. Uh, I probably, I may have said his last name wrong, but he wrote an article, uh, for the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel online yesterday saying that the Milwaukee Brewers are going to stay with what they got. They are not going to go after Craig Kimbrell. Now, I kind of thought they would, especially after earlier this week it was announced that Corey Knebel is going to have Tommy John surgery and he needs to have the ACL repaired. But reports from Milwaukee is that they're not going to do that. That surprises me a little bit. Now I'm even more interested to see who and where um, Craig Kimbrell ends up now that Corey Knebel can add. Uh, speaking of pitching, the Boston Red Sox, they uh, re-upped Nathan Eovaldi in the offseason. They've got uh, Rodriguez pitching for them. They have Chris Sale on opening day. How'd that work out in Seattle? Uh, opening day for Chris Sale, seven runs in three innings. Nathan Eovaldi gave up two homers in the first in their game, the second game of the season. Uh, for the Red Sox, six runs, five innings. Yesterday, Rodriguez, six runs, five earned, over four and a third. Rick Porcello goes later on today. Let's see if he can do better than that, because uh, the first three games, their starters have given up uh, 12. 19 runs. That's right. 19 runs the Boston Red Sox started. Now, the Red Sox can put runs on the board, but... Their their starters can't be doing that. I know it's early in the season, but you know you got to point these things out. And as I point that out, I also want to point out on the other end of the spectrum, the Toronto Blue Jays pitching staff. Now, the only time people in this area have even talked about Toronto is, well, why aren't they going to bring up Vlad? Vlad Guerrero Jr., why isn't he going to be here? Well, they're going to deal with the service time situation, something the White Sox didn't have to worry about with Aloya Menez because they signed him to a six-year deal, something that the Padres, you thought were going to keep down Fernando Tatis to get the service time, and guess what? From what I understand, Manny Machado and Eric Hosmer 
went out to dinner with either the owner or the GM. I don't have it in front of me. I can't remember which it was. But they went out for dinner, and they convinced them <laughs> that we want to start the season with Fernando Tatis Jr. at shortstop. Okay? Um, and I'm going to say something about the junior stuff, too, in a second. But Fernando Tatis playing, I saw him make, there was a ground ball to him. And usually a ground ball to short with a man at second base, you don't usually want to throw to third because the odds are a lot of times you're going to throw late. It's not going to work. You're going to leave the guy to hit the ball on base. Well, not for Fernando Tatis, through to Manny Machado, tagged the guy out going to third base, and everything worked out fine for them. Um, but I wanted to talk about Toronto. That's why I brought this whole thing up. The Toronto starting pitchers have not allowed a run in three games. I just mentioned that Sale, Livaldi, and Rodriguez for Boston have allowed 19 runs. The Toronto Blue Jays pitching staff of Marcus Stroman, Matt Schumacher, and... Um, Aaron Sanchez, have not allowed a run in the first three games for Toronto. That's really good. Obviously, that's what you want your pitchers to do. Shut down the opposition, and that's what Toronto's doing. So, I don't know. Can Toronto be a force? Can Toronto be dealt with in the American League East? Can they challenge the Yankees and the Red Sox? We'll have to wait and see if, in fact, that's a possibility. 312-332-3776. Bryce Harper, Manny Machado, they were the big names throughout the course of the offseason. Bryce Harper eventually signing with Philadelphia. Uh, He held out, wanted to sign for the most money and have the biggest contract that he did until Mike Trout signed like a week afterwards. Uh, Bryce Harper was booed after striking out a couple of times in the opener at um, the ballpark, Citizens Bank Ballpark um, in Philadelphia. He's booed. He gets his big deal, $326 million or whatever it was, and uh, he gets booed, right? So... What happens yesterday? Bryce Harper, it's a 465-foot homer. He has to come out for a curtain call. They are fickle fans in Philadelphia. And uh, it's going to be interesting following this throughout the course of the season and following the National League East. Baseball is going to be so much fun, and we're going to talk a lot about it each and every Sunday right here on ESPN 1000. Now, John Greenberg, my guys, Sahad of Sharma, all the people over at The Athletic, they ran a baseball poll, basically, and talked to about a third of the league, players from all around the league. Uh, Asked them a lot of questions, favorite manager. uh, If you were playing for a manager other than the manager you're playing for now, who would it be and things like that. But they asked two questions that I wanted to bring back. And those two questions are, who is the most underrated player in the game and who is the most overrated player in the game. Now, for who is the most underrated player in the game, the top result was Anthony Rendon of the Nationals. 11.4% of the players said that Rendon was the most underrated player in the game. By the number there, you see 11.4%. That's kind of a low number, which means there were a lot of guys out there. A lot of names were thrown out there. Runners up, were Paul Goldschmidt, 8.9%, DJ LeMayhew at 5%, and Nick Markakis at 4.5%. Also receiving multiple votes, three or more, Mike Trout, Blake Snell, Chris Davis, who just continues to hit homers, Eugenio Suarez, third baseman for Cincy, uh, Eddie Rosario, Whit Merrifield, Nolan Arenado, Matt Chapman, 
Mitch Hanniger, Freddie Freeman, and Marwin Gonzalez. Now, in their own words, some of the quotes that some of the players had. On Rendon, they say every time we play the Nationals, he makes every single play. I think he's a superstar. And he's going to be one of the next guys to get paid real soon. On Goldschmidt, he does it every year. Even last year when he started a buck ninety, everyone was like, watch at the end. He'll be 300 with 20 homers. He's a quiet superstar. And on Mike Trout, can you be underrated after that contract? Probably still. Interesting. Now, for the most overrated player. Now remember the percentage of players that voted for Anthony Rendon as the most underrated was 11.4%. The most overrated getting 62% of the votes Bryce Harper. And some of the words from the players on Harper some of the quotes especially now after the big contract he signed Another one, it's marketing. It's star power. But what has he done besides have one year? Well, you would think I wrote that. He had one MVP season. Other than that, not so much. Uh, there was a note here that the results here are unsurprising considering the players overwhelmingly voted for Harper last year as well. And that was before he signed his $330 million contract. Um, Others receiving multiple votes. Oh, runner-up for most overrated was Marcus Stroman. It went from 62% going to uh, Bryce Harper. Next was Marcus Stroman at 4.1%. Others receiving multiple votes as the most overrated player. Giancarlo Stanton, Jason Hayward, Kevin Kiermeyer, Manny Machado, Noah Syndergaard, and Gary Sanchez. Um, also receiving single votes all the prospects, and one of the players had the audacity to say, when asked who is the most overrated player, he said Bernie the Brewer. Really? How can a guy who slides after every Milwaukee Brewers homer up in Miller Park, who slides down a slide into a uh, mug of suds or balloons, how can he be overrated? That's one of the cooler things for after a home run, isn't it? At least I kind of thought it was one of the cooler things. So each and every Sunday, we'll be talking a lot of baseball here, maybe around this time, maybe a little bit earlier, maybe a little bit later. But uh, lots of baseball, talking baseball here on ESPN 1000. We're going to get more into uh, the Cub game from last night. We're going to talk with Jesse Rogers in just a little bit. The White Sox lineup is out. We'll go over that before we're out of here. And uh, other notes, and don't forget, it's NCAA tournament. Two more teams punching their ticket for their trip to Minneapolis. And by the way, Black and Abdallah will be in Minneapolis. Next Sunday, they're going to be doing a show after the two games on Saturday. They're going to be doing a show right here before me at ESPN 1000. This is Chicago's Game Day, only on ESPN 1000 and ESPNChicago.com. In. Fred Hubner with you till the top of the hour. Don't forget the NCAA games right here on ESPN 1000 today. You have Auburn and Kentucky and Michigan State and Duke. Catch it all here on ESPN 1000. Uh, last night, we were all waiting to see the first start for you, Darvish. And most of us had to sit and watch it on TV. Not this guy. Jesse Rogers is there in Texas. Jesse, what's going on? 
I wish I was home watching it. I could have taken a nap in the first uh, three or four innings there because it went on forever. Not a good night for you, Darvish, at all, Fred. Where do you want to start? Because we could go a bunch of different directions on this game. It was it was not a good one for the pitching staff. Well, after his after the first two batters, I said this guy's going to strike out ten and he's going to go like five and a, five and a third or six innings and everything's going to work out great. And then he walked three guys in a row. So I I didn't know how to figure it out and what what to make out of it last night. Yeah, well, he lost command of his fastball pretty early in the game. Now, this happened a few times in the spring, so this could be a little bit of a concern. It's kind of a, a trend. But the difference is in the spring, first of all, you're not playing for real, so right. that's one thing. But also, he did get to his secondary pitches, and those work. That's the beauty of Udarvish. He's got a, an arsenal of pitches that if one isn't working, you can go to another one. Now, when it's your fastball, that's a, that's a bigger problem than if it's another pitch. So the point is, what he, what worked sort of in spring training when he didn't have his fastball did not work last night. He couldn't find the zone with, with his secondary pitches. Now, it did not help that Brian Onora, the home plate umpire, did have a tight zone last night. So it's almost like a little bit of a perfect storm. He lost the feel on his fastball, um, had a tight zone, and couldn't command even the secondary pitches because he was close. He was around the plate. But right. That, that's, that's meaningless. I mean, at the end of the day, it is seven walks, a career high. Um, it, it is a concern that you, know, we, you don't want to be sort of trying to figure it out and explain things every five days with this guy, right? At some point, he's, he's got to, I don't know, lack of a better word, man up and just uh, get it done. Tight zone or not, but, you know, losing the feel on one pitch or not, you'll figure it out. Most pitchers don't have great feel on every single pitch every outing. So no excuses. It was just not good. Maybe coming back here and pitching in Texas had some you know, emotion attached to it, at least that's what Wilson Contreras thought afterwards. Uh, but I just talked to Tommy Hadovy, the pitching coach, and um, he just felt like uh, that for whatever reason throughout the spring, and it happened last night, he has not commanded his fastball as much as he'd like, so it's something they got to work on. You know, you you just got to what I was going to talk about. They made a they made sure that the former Texas Rangers pitchers, Darvish and Hamels, faced their former team in Texas. And maybe that was the wrong thing to do. Maybe it was would have been better to go with, you know, Hendricks in game two and I don't know, maybe still one of them in game three, uh, instead of Quintana. But, you know, they made that made they made sure they were going to do it. And Hamels is going today and maybe that was the wrong move. Possible. I, I I just don't see that much emotion attached. I mean, it, the only time a little di- the only time I saw yeah. emotion was when um, who was it that took the walk and he was shaking his head like, "No, you're not going to get me on that one." Um, their, yeah. their shortstop yesterday, uh, uh, Elvis Andrus. He, yeah. he he yeah. shook his head and looked back at, at at you, Darvish, and maybe that got into his head. Yeah, we talked about it a lot last year. We thought he was maybe a little fragile with an error behind him or a balk called and not able to get over it. Maybe little things like that still get to him. It's possible. I mean, it is definitely possible. I, I, I you know, it's not like yeah, he's two years removed from the Rangers. He's not facing like Adrian Beltre and right. You know, some of these big big names. I mean, there's a few guys left. I, I just. The place had more Cub fans than Ranger fans. It did. They get great seats, those Cub fans. They were all over. Every time they'd show the dugout or behind home plate, there were Cub fans everywhere. Uh, The fact that he he lost command of his fastball several times in the spring, and then it happened again yesterday, tells me it has nothing to do with who he faced. I just don't believe it. It, I feel like it's different. It's it's two years removed. Everything I said. So, 
it, it, he did what he what he did a little bit in the spring. He lost command of his fastball. So, anyway, um, uh, you know that he probably concerns me more than Carl Edwards. If you want to move towards him? Yeah, he was going to be next. He, yeah, he gave up the lead late. I mean, Darvish concerns me more because it seems like there's always something with him. You know, lost command of his fastball. Um, a balk throws him off his game like last year. You know, I, I don't want to be doing this for, for the first month or so or trying to explain Darvish. Edwards, he's trying a new motion. He's got a one-run lead. Things sped up on him a little bit. I mean, there's a little bit of Tommy Hotteby, the pitching coach, talking. He looked really good in spring. He never lost command in spring. He never got hit hard you know so you know Darvish had a little bit up and down in terms of that fastball command I guess what I'm saying is I just think first I'm more willing to give Edwards a pass he's had really good starts in the past he gets off to a bad one here let's see let's see how he rebounds remember he's had really good stuff over time just hasn't played out for six or seven months he's never really struggled early so I'm willing to I'm willing to give him one bad outing in terms of maybe it did speed up on him maybe trying everything the sides sidestep the, the the new hesitation it all kind of went too fast for him um what i don't like what i still don't like about edwards is some of the things he says afterwards i asked him directly now remember he gave up a five a five hopper base hit up the middle right. big deal to start the inning but then he walked the next guy right before the home run and 99 times out of 100 a coach a manager the pitcher himself will say yeah that walk was the was the bad thing and the, the home run was just a bad pitch. You know, bad pitches happen. But you can't walk guys, you know, with a one-run lead. And you already got a man on, and it's Joey Gallo up next. He kind of dismissed the walk. And I thought that, that – I don't think that's the right way to look at it. You've got to control what you can control. Gallo could have hit a pitcher's pitch out for a home run. But when you're throwing four balls, you know, to a guy, right. uh, that, that, that's, that's you. That's on you when you're walking guys. So I, I don't always like what Carl Edwards says – Afterwards, um, there you know. And the other thing is, he does, he hasn't shown um, the ability to, to to get past a bad moment. And I feel like the walk was the bad moment in that inning. It didn't surprise me that the home run followed the walk. You know, so I feel like he's got to put more more emphasis on on that walk and understand that I got to throw strikes. And that was you know Tommy Hotovy's message to me, the pitching coach. First of all, it's not easy to walk twelve guys in eight innings. No. By the way, not nine innings with eight at bats. Yeah. That, that's pretty rare. Cubs haven't done that since 2002. So his message to me is if, 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 if you've got to trust your stuff. You've got to trust your stuff and just go after guys. I mean, if, if uh, instead of the walk, you know, he gave up the home run there because he went after a guy, all right, well, it's a two-run shot. Instead, now with two men on, you really have to come into Gallo. It's a three-run shot. So, you, you know, so you'd rather go after guys, give up the solo shot if you have to, and, and go from there. And Darvish, you know, he just nibbled enough to, 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 you know, get out of the game after two and two-thirds innings, and then Edwards Edward nibbles enough to, to put two men on and, and give up the three-run shot. So that was Hadovy's message in general. And Katana walked a few as well. Trust your stuff enough in the zone. And it sounds like when you talk about Edwards and Darvish, as I, as I wrap this uh, good thing up, it's, it's more between their ears. Okay. I don't think that that's changed from last year to this year it's between their ears more than it is in their arm okay one other quick thing about uh, edwards i i swore i heard someone talk about his velocity being down a little bit and wouldn't with nobody on base and when he does that silly little hesitation thing i would think you know you're he's not winding up he's pitching from the stretch it seems all the time it seems like he's lose you know that that little pause 
makes him come to a stop as opposed to Kenley Jansen's or or Kershaw's where it's still kind of they're still like either way to the plate. He's like he brings it, he stops, then he just throws. And it's kind of like I could understand him losing velocity the way he's throwing. But apparently, apparently that didn't happen in the spring. Otherwise, they would have brought it up. Exactly. And that's why I think the motion uh, maybe very subtly was different last night. He, he, something was off a little bit with that delivery. Okay. Again, I think because it was the first game, his first outing, um, the adrenaline was pumping. He just he didn't look exactly the same as he did in the spring. Because you're right, this, in the spring the velocity was okay, and the motion looked fluid. It actually looked fluid, even though there was a hesitation. So that's where Tommy Hardy was telling me it, it, he was just off a little bit, and they they assume it's because it was just the first game, and and that happens sometimes. So you're not wrong. Um, Normally, something not normally, but sometimes when velocity's down, you're worried about an injury. But they do think that the delivery was a little off. So it is something he's still perfecting. It isn't necessarily second nature. You, you, you would hope that the, that spring training would would get him there. You know, it would yeah. be second nature. But already in his first start, the delivery was off a little bit, and it caused all sorts of problems. So um, he's got to find it. He's got to find it quickly. He's really important. Now, I, I will say, I think Joe's going to have a shorter leash with him, even though he doesn't have a ton of other options. The one other option, and I've kind of talked this guy up, is Brandon Kinsler, who came in after Edwards and had an easy inning, got a double play ball, and struck out a guy, broke a bat. Brandon Kinsler's a former all-star closer, and you, you, you're good, you may have to go to him. They may have to switch roles in the short term if Edwards doesn't find it. Kinsler be be sort of the plus reliever when you're ahead and, and Edwards, not so much, I guess. I'm not saying Edwards pitches when you're down five, but he's got to find his game quickly, or I think Joe's got to think about other ways to go in the eighth inning. Okay, Joe, I know, didn't tell you guys about this before the game, and it, it wouldn't have made any sense because you wouldn't say, well, listen, if Darvish has problems, we have we right. can always go to Jose Quintana. Quintana actually came in, pitched four innings. He walked too many guys, but he actually did a pretty good job. He did okay. He did okay. You know, unusual for him to have to come in mid-game. You sort of give him a little bit of a, a break there. But the, the whole thing was based on the off days, being off right. on Friday and being off on Tuesday. Um, they never committed to, to uh, Quintana next Wednesday, which is when he would pitch. He did not pitch, like, on his normal day the other day. That was a good indication they could use him in the bullpen at some point here. So, yes, it was kind of planned if they needed him, whether it be yesterday or even today. Um, to, to throw him in the bullpen, and that would be kind of used as his start. Yeah, because they wanted to keep. You know, they didn't want to have Lester sit six days. He's already sure. sitting five days. Yeah. So yeah, it was all kind of planned out that way, and he did okay. He walked the tightrope a little bit. They'd give up those two runs, but part of it was Bodie booted a ball. They actually called a hit. So. No, Katana was the least of the problems compared to Darvish and Edwards, in my opinion. Okay, last night, and I don't know, maybe I just missed it. What were the were the glasses for Chris Bryant new last night? He warmed Thursday as well, and okay. it's because it was uh, so windy, and he'll do that at Wrigley a little bit more. Um, it's affecting his, his contacts with the wind, the way it's blowing. It was, it's been blowing here. Okay, let's see today. He, maybe he wears them, maybe he doesn't. It's not as windy today, but that's what that was about. Okay, they they had a couple of uh, lineup changes. I hear Descalso's probably playing, and so's Caratini. Yep. Yeah, they both are. You you want to stack your, your lineup with lefties against Lance Flynn? Remember the Cubs did that a couple years ago. He was with the Cardinals, and they really took it to him. So they, they uh, easy opportunity for Caratini to catch. Remember, they, they, they don't want to overwork uh, Contreras, even though he's got off to a hot start. So yep. they'll, they'll add two lefties. And, you know, Joe and any manager usually likes to get the entire roster at least one start in that first week. 
Um, because guys have a lot of at-bats built up throughout spring training. If you sit them for two weeks, all of a sudden you've lost any rhythm. So the Scousers in there, Caratini's in there. It's not about Sunday getaways and stuff like that, and <laughs> Joe isn't showing urgency. And people have already asked me about that. Sure. I'm telling you, when Jed and Theo talked about sense of urgency, it had nothing to do with lineups. Absolutely nothing. They're on board with Joe's lineups. And the reason I know that is because Joe continues to make those lineups. They are his bosses. They can tell him, look, I don't want Sunday getaway day lineups. I want your, I want Chris Bryant playing 162. He could, uh, Theo could tell Joe that. When they talk about the urgency, again, let me repeat this for, for people that are hard of hearing. It has nothing to do with Joe's lineups. It has to do with their day-to-day work and prep and all that stuff. So let me make that clear. Caratini's going to play as much as Caratini would have played, regardless of the sense of urgency talk that we had in the offseason. Same thing with Descalso. Same thing with all the bench players. Okay, because I mean, you mentioned it. Contreras three for five yesterday, hitting the ball pretty well. Um, you know, and I understand it. That that's kind of a day you'd, you'd kind of like to see him back out there again. But you're right. You can the, disagree with it, Fred. You can disagree with it, right? But but just understand that that's what's going on here. Right. And this isn't Joe being Joe. This is this is what they're going to do. They're going to play their lineup the way they they've built it up figuring out the days when to play all your lefties because it's Lance Lynn and the days when to when to sit there. You know, that you're maxing out the lineup based on the schedule. That's what you're doing. And the fact that you gotta keep some guys fresh. I mean, it's not like Joe's the only person that does that. I mean everybody plays their their their, their backups at times. Maybe Joe does a little bit more in the in the first half because he believes in, in rest more than maybe most uh, you know, a lot of other managers. But in general Theo, Joe, and Jed are on the same page when it comes to this stuff. And again, it has nothing to do with the off-season sense of urgency discussion. Okay, I don't want to uh, rack your brain or have you rack your brain. You've been thinking too much in all spring training and everything else. But really quickly, do you know what my favorite part of the game was last night? Oh, boy, knowing you, let's see, knowing you. It happened late in the game. Yeah, it happened late in the game. Um, No, I can't think of some... I can't think. I know how you are. You're crusty and you're <laughs> crotchety and all okay. that stuff. But I don't know. I don't. I can't find that moment that would fit. Here, here's my favorite play of the game: two outs in the ninth inning. Kyle Schwarber lays down a bunt because the op, the infield was pulled over. They were in the shift. He pulled one. He first he tried and he didn't make it. Then he d- lays one down. Rolls down the third base line. Hits the third base bag. His job wasn't to hit a homer there. It was to get on base. And it was so nice to see that. That was one of my favorite parts of the game last night. Yeah, good one. I agree with you. Absolutely down two. You have to get on base one way or another. It's it's risky in the sense that if you make a bad bunt, the game's over on a bunt. And that sucks. But if you if you do you don't even need a perfect bunt. You just need anything down to the left left side there, and and you're going to be safe. So his margin for error is large in that situation. I agree with you. Down two, it's smart. I think Rizzo and Schwarber will probably max out on bunt attempts this year. I truly believe that the way those guys are played. There were so many moments last night. I mean, I cannot believe more guys just don't try it. Right on either team when you're shifted like that. Um, at one point, Bodie, with one strike, went went like back near second base. I'm like, God, with one strike, you're you know usually with two strikes you back off and stuff. Sure. But even with one strike, he backed off. I'm like, man, who cares? Zero strikes or one strike, put down the bun. I'm just thinking about the opposing player in that sense. But uh, I I loved it too. It was a great call. 
And I think you're going to see Rizzo and, and, and Schwarber do it more and more this year in particular. Yeah, I would not be surprised to uh, see Rizzo have a nice day today. Uh, Caratini's catching, right? It's not at first base. So, so yes, yeah. yes. Caratini's okay. catching. They're, like I said, they've loaded up with the lefties. Right. Uh, Baez the, the, and Brian are the two righties that are in there, obviously. Um, and Elmore is in there as well. Uh, remember, they only have three bench players, Caratini, Descalso, and, and Zaguna. Zaguna's another righty. So one of those two righties had to play. And um, so Almora will get a chance today. Josh, you look great in the cowboy hat. My wife said you look better than me, so you got that going for you. I think it was the shades, though. Maybe I'll maybe I'll buy it. Maybe I'll <laughs> buy it and put it on the company tab. Yeah, it looked good. Uh, enjoy enjoy your time, and then it's off to Atlanta. We'll talk to you later. You got it, Fred. Take care, Jesse Rogers down in Texas. Cubs wrap up the series. It'll be Hamels against Lance Lynn. We'll wrap things up. We come back after this in the ESPN One Thousand. This is Chicago's Game Day, only on ESPN 1000 and ESPNChicago.com. White Sox! White Sox! Go, go, White Sox! Let's go, 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 White Sox! Oh, the White Sox looking for their first win of the year today. They've lost the first two to Kansas City. Yohan Moncada off to a nice start. Eight at-bats, four hits, a homer, a couple RBIs, three runs scored, and no strikeouts yet. That's a big key for the White Sox and Yohan Moncada. We've got the uh, starting lineups for the Sox. Lurie Garcia in center, Moncada at third, and then Jose Abreu is your DH. Um, Yonder Alonso is at first. Eloy Jimenez, after a couple of hits yesterday, is in left field hitting fifth. Daniel Palka back in right field. you got to work on that defense, Daniel. And speaking of working on the defense, Tim Anderson's at shortstop. Two games, two errors. So he's out of pace for 162. James McCann behind the plate, and Yolmer Sanchez is playing second base. Lucas Giolito is on the hill, and Giolito knows that um, he's lucky. He's fortunate. As a matter of fact, if I can find this real quick, Giolito said, yeah, getting the opportunities I've gotten has been huge for me, the organization, coaching staff, teammates sticking with me when I was putting up not-so-great numbers, having some starts when I'm not giving the team a chance to win it all, just having the clubhouse behind me, all these people behind me in the my corner wanting to see me successful, it helps. Well, show us how it helps, Lucas Giolito, and go on out and pitch a good game today. Give the White Sox six, six and a third, six and two-thirds innings, and Maybe a victory. That would be nice to see. Thanks to Scott Phillips from NBC Sports Chicago and uh, Jesse Rogers for jumping on in. Uh, lots of NCAA tournament action coming right up. Got a doubleheader for you here on ESPN 1000. Auburn taking on Kentucky, then Michigan State against Duke. And apparently, Khalil Mack trying to find a way to get to the the game today as he would uh he'd be more than happy to try and guard zion williamson because michigan state may need it when uh tom Izzo goes against coach k and duke later on today thanks to felix reyes for all of his help today thanks to you for listening be back again uh, later in the week sometime right here on espn 1000 